0: Mark Bell, somewhere in time. Tonight featuring Coast to Coast AM from September 24th, 1997. From the high desert and
1: the great American Southwest, where we are currently bracing for Hurricane Nora, that's right, a hurricane headed straight for Nevada. Great, huh? (laughs) From the Hawaiian Islands, the Tahitian Island Chains, eastward over flyover country, ...to the Caribbean and the U.S. Virgin Islands, south into South America, north to the Poland, worldwide on the Internet. This is Coast to Coast AM. I'm Art Bell, and you're in for a wild ride tonight. Because we have the man who probably is on his way to replacing Carl Sagan. If anybody ever can replace Carl Sagan as the nation's science spokesman, he is Dr. Michio, Professor Michio Kaku... A professor of theoretical physics, uh, physics rather, at New York University, and he'll be up in a moment. It will be, I
0: guarantee, a wild ride. Now we take you back to the night of September 24th, 1997, on Art Bell, somewhere in time.
1: Now, I believe it's Kirkus Reviews said, uh, regarding visions, uh, Dr. Kaku's book, with this fascinating volume, Kaku positions himself as a worthy successor to the late Carl Sagan, as a spokesman for the potential of science to revolutionize our lives. Dr. Michio Kaku is an authority on relativity theory and quantum physics. He is a professor of theoretical physics at New York City University, or uh, at the City University of New York, I'll get that straight. He is also the author of the widely acclaimed bestseller Hyperspace, of which both the New York Times and the Washington Post selected as one of the top science books of the entire year. Whew, that's good. He is also the author of Beyond Einstein, And quantum field theory, a modern introduction. Dr. Kaku graduated summa cum laude from Harvard in 1968, received his Ph.D. from Berkeley, and has been a professor at CCNY for the past 25 years. Co-founder of the string field theory and author of nine books and over 70 scientific articles, Dr. Kaku is currently working on completing Einstein's Dream of a Theory of Everything. A theory of everything. A single theory to describe everything from protons, uh, neutrons, and even DNA. Voted one of the 100, uh, 100 smartest New Yorkers by New York Magazine. He, in fact, hosts a national science radio talk program himself that airs on WBAI in New York. KPFA in Berkeley, KCMU in Seattle, and WWUH in West Hartford. His scientific commentaries can be heard on Pacifica Radio on over sixty radio stations. He's appeared on Nightline, Nova, Larry King, BBC, The Learning Channel. He's about to appear, I think I think possibly next week on Sixty Minutes. And the six part PBS special Stephen Hawking's Universe. Here is Professor Kaku. Hi hi there, Professor.
2: Hi, glad to be on, Art.
1: Uh, glad to have you. Welcome back mm-hmm. to the program. Uh, your last show uh, really uh, had a lot of comment uh, uh, from the listeners, so um, here you are returned.
2: Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, I got uh, 200 emails
1: uh, from,
2: <laughs> <laughs> from the uh, last appearance on your show. I was overwhelmed.
1: Yes, well, good. Um, we have many, many, many things to talk of, but I thought we might begin with, since... Your book is called Visions, and you are obviously a visionary, a scientific visionary of sorts. Where do you think we are going to go, assuming we, we make it uh, in the next hundred years? By the way, when I say I, uh, assuming we're going to make it, uh, we sit here this very evening awaiting a hurricane in Nevada. Uh, Dr. Uh, uh, hurricane Nora is streaming uh, north and it looks like we're going to have uh, a dead center hit here with, uh, with a hurricane, and they're forecasting five inches of rain in desert areas that really can't stand another inch at this point. So we're a little concerned out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, things are getting a little strange weather-wise uh, around the globe right now, mm-hmm. and there are some pretty strange environmental things going on. So assuming that we make it past all of this craziness, Where are we then headed in the next 100 years? What do we have to look forward to?
2: Okay. Well, first of all, I've always been fascinated by the future ever since I was a child watching science fiction movies. And now that I'm a professor of physics, I decided to interview 150 top scientists. These are Nobel Prize laureates, six Nobel Prize winners, several Pulitzer Prize winners, Mm -hmm. and about uh, 20 directors of major laboratories in the United States laboratories of computer science, uh, robotics, genetic engineering and cloning, uh, nanotechnology, lasers, fusion. And what I got was an exhilarating picture of the fact that in the next 100 years, we're going to be able to, to stop being simply um, observers of nature, you know, stop simply being gawkers of nature and wondering what is life, what is intelligence, what is matter to becoming master choreographers, to be able to manipulate life almost at will, to be able to create new substances almost on demand, and to be able to create uh, intelligence practically everywhere in the universe.
1: Well, that's already a big handful. Uh, Let us begin with manipulate life. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you believe that uh, the unraveling of the human genome and nanotechnology may lead to... A virtual, um, well, I I guess I don't want to say that that we would live forever, but uh, a great life extension.
2: I think there is a definite possibility. Last month, there was this tremendous announcement made that scientists have isolated two genes, which are extremely important to understanding why cells age and why we grow old. The first gene was for progeria, which is this bizarre disease that makes children Age right before your eyes. Uh, children just barely out of um, diapers and going to elementary school, uh, dying of, of old age. I have seen it. Attacks.
1: I've seen the phenomena. I've seen pictures. It's in- incredible. It's
2: incredible. And the gene was isolated last month. And they actually inserted this gene, the counterpart, into yeast and actually made yeast uh, age prematurely. So wow. the gene is now isolated. Also for something called telomerase. Now, telomerase is not something that your listeners have heard about probably, but it will be on the lips of perhaps millions of people because telomerase in some sense controls the aging of the cell.
1: Can you spell that for me?
2: Yeah, T-E-L-O-M-E-R-A-S-E. And some people are hailing this as perhaps the first of the human age genes, that is, genes which actually control the aging process at the cellular level. Now, this was isolated at MIT and uh, another laboratory. And uh, if you think of the chromosome of a cell sort of like a shoestring, like you put on your shoe. Sure. And the tips of it, you know those plastic tips that uh, prevent the fraying of your uh, shoestring? Yes. That's that's your telomeres. And when your uh, plastic tips get shorter and shorter, then it's like a fuse of a time bomb. Uh, the cell disintegrates and dies when that plastic tip of the chromosome disappears but you see telomerase allows you to control the age instead of dying when the fuse gets too small like a time bomb you can make the fuse get bigger Uh, for example cancer cells have the capability of doing this now this has enormous implications because we can now delay the death of a cell Cells usually divide about 60, 70 times, and then they go kaput. They just die on you, right? Yes. That's one reason why we age. And that gene was isolated last month, you see? So I'm not saying that we found the cure for aging. All I'm saying is that we've now found several genes that are linked directly
1: to human aging. Professor, can, is this uh, telonorase? Is it uh, the discovery of this the result of the premature aging syndrome
2: Uh, Well, it turns out that in cells, um, if cells have mutated uh, telomeres, then they will die prematurely. Or if they have mutated telomeres in the other direction, then they live forever. In other words, they actually become cancerous. They keep on dividing and form from a
3: tumor. So
1: then the study of one, what I'm asking is the study of one, produced the second discovery. That's right. Uh Uh-huh. That's right. You got it. That will change. uh, Well, what would that conceivably do if fully developed? What could we expect from that?
2: Well, I interviewed a Nobel Prize laureate, Walter Gilbert, and many directors of laboratory about this, and they're very cautious because they don't want to excite the public and then be let down later, right? But what they say is this, this is the beginning, the beginning of isolating genes that control why cells get old and why they eventually die. previously it was a mechanism that was unknown but now we know that uh, every cell has this a fuse like a time bomb and when the fuse gets smaller these tips of the shoelace uh, get smaller and smaller until there are no more then the cell simply dies and before it dies it actually becomes senescent it becomes uh, rickety old uh, decrepit Mm. and then it dies Mm. and you can actually delay that process now the process can in fact be delayed and that, of course, gives us the ability to control cell aging.
1: What, now, are the, what are the best guesses? I mean, if you were to go out on a limb and say it might produce another 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years of life, what might it do?
2: Oh, well, I think, well, first of all, I think within 20 years we'll have most of these age genes isolated. We'll be able to control the age of a cell almost at will at the uh, genetic level within 20 years, we'll have almost all of them mapped out within five years. Of course, we'll have most of the human genome mapped out, right? Mm -hmm. And then we'll be able to manipulate them. You know, uh, I interviewed the director of gene therapy at the University of Southern California, and he predicts that we'll be able to go to the doctor's office in 20 years and and get a shot, just like getting a polio shot, Yes. except that shot will alter your genes, alter the human genome. So if you have, for example, Tay-Sachs, because you have a Jewish background or you have sickle cell anemia because uh, you're African-American or you have uh, cystic fibrosis because you're Caucasian, you'll be able to have this shot. This shot will consist of a small virus. It'll make you perhaps sick for a day or so. But this virus will then inject the correct gene for Tay-Sachs and sickle cell anemia and cystic fibrosis. In other words, they
1: use something like the cold or flu virus as a vector to get it in there.
2: That's right, exactly, you got it. Okay, so in other words, you take an ordinary uh, flu virus, for example, disarm it so it doesn't cause the flu, inject the correct gene into it, and uh, then inject it into your body, and it becomes like a Trojan horse. A Trojan horse, it works its way into your cells and injects the correct gene and repairs the, the incorrect gene. Now, of course, this has enormous implications because, of course, parents... Would like to meddle with the heritage of, of their children. You know, yes. They give them violin lessons, they give them sports lessons, and, and think of what you could do if you could manipulate the, the genome of your kids a bit. Make them taller, perhaps a little bit handsomer.
1: Order up um, a basketball knowing. player, a, a basketball musician. Player. A physicist.
2: Or maybe even a physicist, right? (laughs) If that's your inclination, right? (laughs) So uh, I'm not saying that we're going to have it. All I'm saying is that I've interviewed the top directors of these laboratories, and they're confident that in about 20 years or so, this will become commonplace. You know, it'll be something that is part of. Of going to the doctor's office. Well, let me ask you a very
1: selfish question. Now, I'm 52 years old. Mm -hmm. In another 20 years, I'll be 72. Mm -hmm. And so what might I look forward to at 72? Arresting my continuing aging, or is it even possible that within 20 years, everybody's ears are going to perk up at this one, we could begin to even reverse the aging process
2: I think uh, and this is again uh, backed up by scores of scientists who have looked at this thing that uh, this could be one of the big breakthroughs in aging research Uh, on two levels now first of all if your organs begin to to peter out right and your organs begin to fail right we'll be able to grow new ones and again this statement Uh. comes from a Nobel Prize winner we can already grow unlimited amounts of skin Uh, You just take a little bit of skin, we can grow about a football field's worth of skin from a few skin cells, okay? Heart valves can now be grown. However, within 20 years, we'll be able to grow artificial livers and kidneys now, okay? Organs that are not so complicated, like the liver, not so complicated, we'll be able to grow them, and, and kidneys even. And within about 40 years, even the hand and the leg could be grown. And, in fact, in Scientific American, there was even a blueprint published as to how to build an artificial, I mean, a real living hand by building a plastic scaffolding, injecting cells that then grow into this plastic scaffolding like children taking to a jungle, jungle gym, wow. and then creating an artificial limb. Seriously, now, not, not the stuff of science fiction, but getting prototypes of this stuff, Right. And that means that even as we get older and our our limbs begin to, to break down...
3: They could be replaced.
2: That's right. Now, within about 30, 40 years Boy. now, I had one Nobel Prize winner predict that almost every organ of the body, except the brain, <laughs> that's one thing that's going to be hard to replace, every organ except the brain will have some sort of cellular regeneration mechanism.
3: Well, let me every ask this. let us,
1: Let us assume, for the sake of the discussion, that we could regenerate any organs save the brain Mm -hmm. and that physically we could go on and on what would the condition of the brain be what do we know about that uh in other words now people in their 60s 70s sometimes even earlier begin to get alzheimer's Mm -hmm. the longer we live the more alzheimer's we are seeing Mm -hmm. uh would the brain be able to keep up with it
2: well, you know, the, there have been several tantalizing genetic clues to Alzheimer's. The APO gene, um, it's not certified yet, but a certain fraction of people who come down with Alzheimer's do have a very specific genetic mutation. And again, if we have gene therapy, we'll be able to take a shot, um, according to Dr. French Anderson at University of Southern California and correct some of these genes. But not all Alzheimer's is caused by this defect in this one particular gene, okay? So, um, also, we're beginning to figure out how brain cells can regenerate. You know that uh, as a child, your brain is growing rapidly and brain cells are multiplying, but then it stops, and then brain cells just don't regenerate anymore. Look at Christopher Reeve, right? Uh, That horrible accident that he had uh, with the horse. Uh, his spinal cord was, was suffered at, yes. at a certain point, and there's no way known today to regenerate it. But you see, now that we know the DNA of brain cells and we can tease that apart, we'll eventually find the genes that will kick in cell regeneration. Okay, And already in mice now, uh, we can actually make certain cells in mice regenerate even if their spinal cords are cut. Okay? Now, this is hopeful, because one of these days, once we understand how nerve cells uh, you know, stop reproducing, we'll be able to simply you know, inject baby brain cells that are growing, just like in a child, yes. into an aging person, and they'll simply regenerate the brain again.
1: Well, I believe they've already attempted, uh, at some level, that kind of therapy with regards to Alzheimer's, have they not?
2: Uh, Some preliminary attempts have been made, right?
1: Fetal Fetal tissue, fetal brain tissue. That's right. But so
2: far, mixed results. Uh, No one, no one is claiming a victory over that horrible disease, right? But uh, all, all, all I'm saying is that the the top people in the laboratories that I've interviewed are very hopeful that at the cellular level we'll be able to understand this again within 20 years. Now we're not talking about 100, 150 years. We're not talking tomorrow either, (laughs) but we are talking about within about 20 years, we'll be able to understand the mechanism by which uh, this amyloid protein gums up the brain, how we can then regenerate brain cells, and how we can uh, delay the aging process and uh, grow body organs.
1: Do Do you stick your neck out at all and say delay by how much?
2: Well, we're talking about the potential. You know, most people say the humans can live to be about 120 maximum.
1: Right. Right. right.
2: Uh, we're talking about doubling it, going into going into 200s. 200.
1: Oh my! Uh, doubling the
2: doubling the human lifespan. Now again, it's <sighs> speculative and and again, you know, there are some doctors going on in the limb, but I have them on, on record now.
1: <laughs> all, right. Things,
4: all right, and well, when, take when, their when, scientific when, reputation.
1: When all right, well, when we come back I want to ask you about the social some of the social implications of two hundred and forty year olds wandering around. Uh mm-hmm. Professor Michio Kaku is my guest. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so stay right where you are and buckle in.
0: You're listening to Arch Bell somewhere in time on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from September 24th, 1997. Somewhere in Time, the night featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from September 24, 1997.
1: Actually, with Art Bell and Professor Michio Kaku, uh, and we'll get back to him in just a moment. We're going to talk about 240-year-olds. Also an advisory, there are flash flood warnings uh, for a lot of areas of the southwest through Arizona, through my area here in Nevada, and parts of California. Hurricane Nora, with winds to 85 miles an hour, gusting higher at times, is moving north at 17 miles per hour. Presently located at 26.5 degrees north and 114.8 west, is midway up through the Baja Peninsula. So here we go, folks. Hurricanes in the great American southwest. What's next?
3: Locusts. (laughs)
0: <laughs> now we take you back to the night of September 24th, 1997 on Ark Bell, Somewhere in Time.
1: Now, back to Professor Kaku. Uh, Professor, um, if I'm, I'm trying to sit here and imagine uh, 240-year-olds. At the 240-year-old point, what would then occur? The limbs, the organs are still in pretty good shape, or maybe not, or do you get to 240 and speed rot?
2: <laughs> well, you ask a very good question, because when I interviewed uh, these top scientists in aging research, they they evoke this image that is actually incorrect uh, of an, an, uh, a nation of nursing home patients, yes, uh, a nation of people that are just barely one foot in the grave, all their organs petering out, but they happen to be 240 years old. And yes. What about Medicare and what about the strain on the economy and so on <laughs> and so forth? And, and they laughed at that image for the, for, for two possible reasons. Okay, uh, first of all, the organs can be replaced because we will be able to grow organs in that period of time, right. so we'll be healthy. And telomerase, as I pointed out, is implicated not only for the death of cells, but also for the senescence and the and cells becoming decrepit. And before they die, they start to lose cellular function. So we can extend cellular function so that the, uh, the, the cells become, still are supple, they still are functioning, they're active, right. and you can start to reverse some of the damage from from oxidation, for example, in what I call the mitochondria. Uh, The point here is that, first of all, we'll be able to keep people relatively vigorous so that they're not decrepit. Second of all, we'll have artificial intelligence. Now, let me explain. We'll be able to have robot nurses and robot helpers and robot doctors. Now, we've all seen science fiction movies, and we've always laughed at how clunky those robots are, and all the predictions that we're going to have robots never panned out, right? But let me tell you right now that I, I went to MIT and I interviewed the people, the directors at the robotics laboratory. I went to Silicon Valley and I interviewed the top people in Apple and and, uh, and IBM, and they gave me a totally different uh, different hook on the future of computers. If you see a science fiction movie, you see this huge gigantic brain of a of a machine, and you think that uh, scientists of the future will have these big gigantic brains, and aliens from outer space will have big computers. That's not the future of computers and artificial intelligence at all. It's going to be the opposite. Computers are going to become invisible in the next century. They're going to become so tiny you can fit them in your tie clasp. You'll have the power of a supercomputer in your jewelry, in your eyeglasses. The 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 walls, the the furniture, the tables, everything will become smart. Now take a look at electricity. Right when electricity first came along, people thought it was magic and there was one light bulb in the house when uh, you went home. Now electricity is in the walls. We have batteries that, that place it in the car. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. You have about uh, 50 motors in your car, for example. You don't even think about your windshield. You know that your car is electrified. Your house is electrified. You walk into a room and you, you look for the switch, right? Yes. In the future, you will look for intelligence in the walls, intelligence in the windows, intelligence in the chairs, the glasses. You will assume automatically that when you walk into a room, everything has a certain amount of primitive intelligence.
1: Yes, the question is whether that will become, uh, whether that intelligence will become greater than the one sitting on the couch.
2: Uh, yeah, now, now that will take time. Now, here's <laughs> the time frame, because these people are very clear about when things are going to kick in. This is not simply a gee whiz science. We're talking about timetables now. Within 20 years, because of what is called Moore's Law, with computer power doubling every 18 months. Oh yes. Within about 20 years, um... intelligence will become as common as electricity. We'll go to the supermarket, we'll pick up a six pack of batteries, and we'll pick up a six pack of computers. These computers will be the size of a, uh, like, like a tiny little diamond on a diamond ring. They'll be in your tie class, uh, your jewelry, your iframe, your glasses. And they'll help you. You'll be able to access the internet, uh, wherever you are. You'll you have smart clothing. The walls will have a screen. You just talk to the walls and the walls talk back to you. The <laughs> internet, which of course is this, this horrible, horrible thing where you can get lost so easily.
3: Yes.
2: In the future you'll just talk to it. And you simply ask it a question and it'll respond just like in a fairy tale. And in fact, some people think that the future might look like uh, like a Disney movie, when you talk to the teapot, right, Mrs. Teapot in Beauty and the Beast?
1: Well, doesn't that create a real uh, possibility of sort of a collective consciousness?
2: Yeah, these, these appliances will talk to each other for the most part. They will anticipate your needs. They're not going to conspire against you like in some
1: movies. No, I understand. You know? I, when I said a collective consciousness, though... Uh, I, we may have talked about this last time, I'm not sure, but Michael Crichton, who I referred to frequently, mm-hmm. uh, has a theory that as we become more and more interconnected, and even with the Internet at its current stages, it will actually begin to slow the process of evolution, that there will be ten major ideas worldwide, mm-hmm. uh, there will be uh, the same thought patterns, the same things discussed worldwide, innovation will slow, And uh, actually, our uh, our progress as a race, uh, the human race, will begin to slow. Evolution will slow, not speed up, because of this interconnectivity.
2: Well, I think it could go the opposite direction, too. Right now, if you're a genius in India, for example, you may simply die of starvation and never communicate with the rest of the world, like this uh, guy, Ramanujan, one of the greatest mathematicians of the 20th century. He was an obscure Indian. And uh, never got anywhere until he went to uh, Cambridge University, and then you know overturned all of mathematics. Um, Here we have the situation where the internet is going to be like a magic mirror, a companion, a friend to you know five billion people on the planet Earth, so that anyone will be able to harness their creative energy, their ideas, their vitality by talking to this magic mirror on the wall. The magic mirror will talk back to you. It'll have intelligence.
1: In well, that, what, what, in that
2: sense, will free up uh, the creativity of billions of people.
1: What you're saying is not at all far out. Uh, day before yesterday, IBM announced a new chip that will run at five times the present speed of the best chip available. Mm-hmm. I have on my wall an interesting item sent to me from a company in Texas with a couple of uh, flaws in it. These are uh, discs. I would say they're about the size of a uh, of a, um, a CD. Mm-hmm. And they have layers of billions, literally billions of transistors on a single disc. I've got two of them here. They're absolutely beautiful. And, uh, and they would be worth about a half million dollars each were it not for these little flaws, apparently. So they sent them off to me as souvenirs. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're headed, isn't it?
2: That's where we're headed. And, you know, in my book, Visions, I, I lay out the timetable that within 20 years will have invisible computers everywhere, you know, smart rooms, smart tables, smart furniture, smart toasters. We'll, our toasters will toast bread by themselves. They'll turn on the tape recorders. They'll turn on music when you wake up in the morning. Things will be done for you. You'll cyber shop on wall screens that are the size of your wall. TV sets, of course, will, will disappear. PCs will disappear. Mm-hmm. There will be PCs, of course, everywhere in your environment. And then within 50 years now, okay, cause, you know, we don't see it happening before 50 years, uh, human-like intelligence will begin to emerge, uh, machines that have common sense. Now, believe it or not, many people have this, have a hard time believing this, but the reason why we don't have robots, and the reason why we don't have those clunky things you see in science fiction movies, is because of things we take for granted. We take for granted vision, and we take for granted common sense. Mm -hmm. everybody knows that a child is younger than the mother everybody knows that when it rains you get wet everybody knows that animals don't like pain that people don't like to die but computers don't know that you have to tell the computer millions and millions of lines of common sense that when it rains you do get wet that twins age at the same rate Mm -hmm. there are about a hundred million lines of computer code you have to input into a computer to give it common sense that a ten-year-old understands instinctively. Ten-year-olds know that animals don't like pain, right? Computers don't know that. You have to tell the computer that,
1: right? All right, question for you. Yeah. When is it possible, or will it be possible, that a computer, as speed and storage increase, will at some point, with enough knowledge, achieve self-awareness?
2: Okay, now we're getting into a murky area
1: yeah, oh where yes.
2: beyond now uh, 50 years. Okay, within 50 years, we'll have um, a software program you put into your computer, and your computer will talk back to you. You can joke with it, you can talk to it. It'll plan your schedule for you. It'll um, it'll ward off people you don't particularly like. It'll set up appointments and so on and so forth. Mm. But then, at one point, will it have a will of its own? At what point will it start to say, well, why should I obey this person, right? I'm smarter than he is. Right. Why why don't uh, I start to take over?
1: Consciousness.
2: Consciousness, right. Now, let me be very clear about this, okay? Uh, Most computer scientists believe that consciousness will emerge gradually. It's not going to be one day a computer becomes sentient and says, why should I be the slave? i can be the master right yes but now within fifty to a hundred years once we have machines that can begin to reason with us and and joke with us right there is a possible danger that they will have goals goals which you put into them of course but eventually goals which may diverge from your goals
1: right? what, which or, or which may be modified
2: may or, we or modified exactly and at that point we are going to have to put in okay something similar to isaac asimov's three laws of robotics, that you cannot hurt people, you cannot hurt other robots, and uh, you can't do harm, okay? That has to be programmed in, because look at the movie 2001, right? 2001 gave us the future of space travel, that Mm -hmm. we will have a spaceship that is intelligent. The spaceship itself has intelligence, called HAL 9000. Yes. But then HAL 9000 was given a command that it could not carry out, and the only way it could carry out its command by a human, which was contradictory, was to eliminate the humans, because it it went berserk. Uh, It went outside its domain of expertise. This is called the Mesa effect. You know what a Mesa is? like a table. You fall off the table. Uh, When you give a computer like this a command that is outside its uh, logical capabilities, it simply keeps on going.
1: Well, couldn't couldn't that, Professor, be the trip? for consciousness. In other words, that the computer would be at some point presented with something it could not resolve, which would force it to resolve it. Uh, And that process, that very process itself, would birth the beginning of uh, artificial intelligence, true or consciousness.
2: Uh, It could be, yeah. This is called the mesa effect uh, and it's also called negative feedback so that uh, the things get worse and worse. The computer goes off the deep end and goes mad, literally goes mad looking for an answer for which there is no answer, yes. and executing commands that it shouldn't execute, for example, killing humans and creating havoc, like what Hal 9000 did in the movie 2001. But you see, that, I think, is going to be where computers are going to go. We're going to have living spaceships, spaceships which are living. The walls will have a limited intelligence in it. You will talk to the spaceship. You see, that's the most economical way to run a spaceship. Sure. But you have to be careful that uh, you have some kind of shutoff mechanism so the MESA effect doesn't get out of control, and the computer blindly carries out a command that cannot be carried out, unless, of course, you kill humans who gave you the order. You see? So there's a definite shutoff mechanism that has to be put in by hand.
1: All right, well, that brings me back then to what we discussed at first. Uh, let us assume we get 240-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Uh, let us also assume that present social trends don't change drastically, that each pope who comes along continues to suggest birth control is all wrong, mm-hmm. and our numbers continue to m- multiply. What are we, five or six billion? Somewhere five somewhere? and a half, now. Billion, five and right half now. billion. All right, there you are. And uh, th- then quickly, uh, if we're not already out of control as a result of a population, uh, we would uh, surely be then way out of control. And would it not be true that some computer forced to deal with this problem would certainly conclude there need to be fewer humans?
2: Well, that's a a definite possibility. Um, I interviewed some of the U.N. officials in charge of population because, of course, this book takes us into the next hundred years. And the thinking there is that the world population is going to level off at about uh, double what it is now, at about 11 billion. Now, that's not too comforting for some people.
3: <laughs> no, it's but not. Just...
2: Th- the reason why it's going to level off is that as people get more prosperous, they have fewer kids. I mean, people have kids because they're poor. They want insurance policy when they're old. And most kids die in infancy in, in, in poor countries. So you have lots and lots of kids, of which only a small portion will survive, and they'll support you in old age. But when you become middle class, you want to have radio, television. You want to listen to Art Bell.
5: Yes. You want to have
2: all the luxuries. Yes. You don't want to have to be straddled with ten kids. You want to have two kids. Right. So as nations become developed, that's when they automatically limit their population. That's happened to every country so far. All of Europe, uh, Japan has already seen it. The population is going backwards, in fact. China is now seeing it as, as peasants become more middle class. And so the population will probably rise and double, and then seal off at around 11 billion or so. Okay, and of course that's going to put a tremendous strain on resources.
5: Mm-hmm. So we have to
2: have genetic engineering to give us better crops, and so on and so forth. And we're going to have to be very uh, careful because you know pesticides could get out of control. So it is going to be a strain on on the on the world. And uh, by then we'll we'll hopefully have computers that we can communicate with, and hopefully. Have a shut-off mechanism so that they don't get out of control and carry out commands that are uh, not not good for us.
1: Mm. Right, as in fewer people now.
2: As in fewer people now, right? Now I mention this, by the way, because uh, the obvious question is: if this book that I've written projects us to a hundred years, and if there's intelligent life in outer space, they could be a thousand years ahead of us, right? Then, if we were to make contact at some point with alien life in outer space that are, let's say, a thousand years ahead of us, we can begin to see the outlines of what their civilization looks like. You know, we're not so primitive anymore on the Earth. You know, we do have supercomputers. You know, we we've tinkered with DNA a bit now. We we have uh, inklings of what molecules are all about, and we can begin to see sort of what um, an encounter with an alien civilization would be like. Uh, for example, if a spaceship from outer space were to land with computer technology many, many centuries from now, we would expect it to be along this track. That is, its, uh, its shell would be intelligent. Uh, the spaceship is not going to be inert. It's not going to be just a bunch of bolts. It's going to be a living object that you can talk to, and it'll talk back to you, and that uh, there will be objects that have artificial intelligence, and for the, ma- for the most part, flying saucers and whatever, will probably be, be robotic. Uh, it, it's a waste of, of resources to send humans or aliens on these robotic missions when you can send robots.
1: All right, let us talk for a second about the possibility of contact. Mm-hmm. Um, people like yourself, Professor Kaku and others, would be, of course, uh, in the forefront of that kind of contact. But mm-hmm. if this ship, I guarantee you, Professor, came down in the wrong place and there are plenty of wrong places, Uh, whatever walked down the little ramp Mm -hmm. would be so full of lead Mm -hmm. that it would never make it to the bottom of the ramp because there are still so many in our society who would consider these to be devils, manifestations Mm -hmm. of uh, the devil and evil and all the rest of it, and they'd fill them full of lead, I guarantee it, Doctor.
2: Mm -hmm. Right. Well, of course, these civilizations in space, if they are advanced enough, probably know that that's going to happen. If, if we were to journey into some uncharted area, uh, we may find spears hurled at us, right? By people <laughs> who think of us as, as emissaries of the devil. That's right. So, so physicists have looked at the question of, of how do you explore outer space if you are an advanced civilization, right? And uh, the verdict is, from every, every physicist that I've interviewed on this question, the verdict is because there's so many planets out there and because some of them are potentially dangerous, right, as you point out. Sure. The way to do it is to send what are called von Neumann probes. Now, let me, let me go into this. Von Neumann was one of the great mathematicians of the 20th century. He gave us game theory, for example, that allows us to analyze chess and checkers and even business business dealings on Wall Street, for example.
1: So he's responsible for Kasparov nearly going off in tears.
2: (laughs) That's right. It was was, uh, Von Neumann who who helped to set that into motion. (laughs) And he also proved that computers, or what we call Turing machines, that's a scientific term for digital computers, Uh, Turing machines can reproduce themselves. Now, this was quite an achievement. It's one of his great scientific proofs in mathematics. Using pure mathematics, he was able to prove that digital computers, you can program them to build copies of themselves. Ah, yes. Now, this is amazing because if Turing machines are self-replicating and you create one such machine on a distant factory located on a moon someplace, Then, according to this great mathematician, you can create unlimited copies of these things.
1: All right. Hold it right there, and that's what we will pick up on when we get back. My guest is Professor Michio Kaku from uh, New York University, and uh, he will be back shortly. We're talking about the future. And frankly, in a lot of cases, folks, not the far distant future, but a future that may occur. Within your lifetimes. I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast
0: AM. You're listening to Art Bell somewhere in time, tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from September twenty fourth, nineteen ninety-seven. Somewhere in time. The night featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from September 24, 1997.
1: My guest is an amazing man, Dr. Michio Kaku. He is an authority on relativity theory and quantum physics. He is a professor of theoretical physics at the City University of New York. He is also the author of the widely acclaimed bestseller Hyperspace which both the New York Times and Washington Post selected as one of the top science books of the entire year. He's also the author of Beyond Einstein and Quantum Field Theory, A Modern Introduction. And he's got a new book called Visions, which looks at the next hundred years. And you can get Visions in nearly any bookstore across the country. Dr. Kaku graduated summa cum laude from Harvard in 1968, received his PhD from Berkeley, has been a professor at CCNY for the past 25 years. Co-founder of string field theory, author of 9 books and over 70 scientific articles, Dr. Kaku is currently working on completing Einstein's dream of a theory of everything, a single theory which describes everything from protons Neutrons to DNA. And we're going to ask him in a moment about the theory of everything.
0: Now we take you back to the night of September 24th, 1997, on Arc Bell, Somewhere in Time.
1: For the most part of human history, we could only watch, like bystanders, the beautiful dance of nature. But today, we are on the cusp of an epic-making transition from being passive observers of nature to being active choreographers of nature. Michio Kaku, Ph.D., and my guest. uh, Doctor, welcome back.
2: Glad to be on. Uh,
1: Well, the Neumann probe, so... If we were to initiate contact or try to make contact, we did send out, you'll recall, a little spacecraft uh, with all kinds of information about our civilization. Mm -hmm. Did we, in effect, in that spacecraft, tell them too doggone
3: much?
2: Um, I think so. I think we should not advertise our existence until we know what's really out there. Because, after all, look what happened to Montezuma when Montezuma met Cortez. The great Aztec Empire, uh, 5,000 years of civilization, was dissolved within a matter of months, right?
1: So one could make a mistake.
2: That's right. Uh, but let me, first of all, just set the framework like before. Um, let me give you the, the categorizations of what civilizations we're talking about. Uh, the great Russian astrophysicist Nikolai Kardashev uh, ranks civilizations into three basic types. And then we can talk about encounters with the various types. All right. A Type One civilization is a planetary civilization. It gets energy from the entire planet. It can, for example, control the weather, so we wouldn't have an El Nino problem. Right. It can mine the ocean. It gets its energy from inside the Earth. A total planetary energy is what a Type One civilization is. A Type Two civilization exhausts the power of a planet. They have to go to a star. And they control and manipulate stellar energy. This is not just getting a suntan at the beach via the sun. This is having you know, starships so that you just grab a chunk of the sun and put it into your gas tank and take off. So when, when Junior borrows the starship, <laughs> Junior borrows a few white dwarfs and puts it in his gas tank, right? Mm-hmm. That's a type 2. A type 3 civilization exhausts the power of a star. Even a star is not not big enough for them. They have colonized many, many star systems, and they're galactic. Okay? They get their energy from galaxies. That's a Type three civilization. Now, on this scale, you can see that we are Type 0. We're, yes. we're nothing on this scale. Right. We get our energy from uh, dead plants, uh, in other words, coal and oil. However, we can see that within about 200 years, we can see the beginning of a Type One civilization, and uh, that's how I end my book, Visions, by the way, by saying that the great uh, romance of science and technology, unless we really blow it, will take us within 100, 200 years to a type 1 civilization.
1: There is a uh, uh, but one moment, please. Mm-hmm. And that is, I'm recalling our previous conversation, and you said, I, I think I asked you, what, being absolutely frankly honest, are the odds of our achieving type 1 Uh, One might imagine that there are many, many type zeros that get blown away before they get anywhere near type 1 or maybe when they get near type 1. And I Mm -hmm. asked you what are the chances we'll make it to type 1. You said not very good.
2: Not very good, right. Uh the reason being as follows. Uh type zero civilizations in our galaxy is probably you know dime a dozen. There are probably thousands of type zero civilizations that rise from the swamp. The problem is eventually they discover chemicals and they discover element one, element two, element three. They just go up the chart. It's inevitable until they hit element ninety two, which is uranium. And with uranium comes the ability to blow themselves apart and with a hydrocarbon chemistry and plastics as dustin hoffman discovered in the movie the graduate with plastics you get pollution and either they can pollute themselves to death or they can blow themselves apart by settling old racial sectarian nationalist fundamentalist scores with nuclear weapons yes so type zero civilizations are very cheap there are probably a lot of them out there just like us who are then entering this danger period This danger period this transition to type one when we do have nuclear weapons, when we do have pollution. So, the generation alive right now is perhaps the most important generation that's ever walked the surface of the earth because they are the ones who will determine whether or not we make this great transition to type 1 status without blowing ourselves
1: up. This is an obvious question that will probably get you in lots of trouble, but I've got to ask it. It's from Mark in Santa Monica, California, and he asks Would you please, Art, tell Dr. Kaku? that a theory of everything, including protons, neutrons, and DNA, already exists. It's called God.
2: Okay, let me try that one, okay? (laughs) Um, Sure. Okay. Um, Einstein himself believed that what he was doing was reading the mind of God, that uh, there are mysterious laws that were given to us at the instant of creation, and that his job was to read, the, read these laws and to find out what the thinking was that went into creating the universe. So Einstein believed in God. He did not believe in the God of intervention, the God that answers prayers, the God of, of Isaac, Jacob, and Moses that, uh, that performs miracles. However, he believed in the God of harmony, the God of beauty, the God of simplicity. And he felt so deeply about this that he was chasing after the fundamental theory that would give everything and explain how God created the universe and and the cosmos and the simplicity of it all. Mm -hmm. Now, so far, scientists have been able to get uh, the basic laws down to the quantum theory and relativity. However, these two great formalisms, relativity, which gives us black holes and the Big Bang, and the quantum theory, which gives us the atomic bomb and transistors and atomic physics, they don't like each other. We have two polar opposites, the theory of the very big and the theory of the very small. It's as if nature had a left hand and a right hand, and the two hands didn't communicate. Yes. Why would God have two hands? A God that has a right hand that talks about black holes and quasars and galaxies, and a left hand that governs atoms and molecules, and the two hands don't coordinate with each other. Hmm. That was Einstein's dream. And today we think we have it. We have, we think we can read the mind of God now. But to do that, you have to go into hyperspace. And that, that was a subject of my, my earlier book. Um, we have to go to ten-dimensional hyperspace, which I think is fantastic. And, uh, but, you know, we do have to go to higher dimensions. There's not enough room in the three dimensions that we're familiar with to accommodate all the forces of nature.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, then, this should be a good follow-up. Dear Art, Michio Kaku is one of the world's greatest theoretical nuclear physicists. I have a thousand questions, but I'll limit it to two. One. The theory of parallel universes is an intense area of research in contemporary theoretical physics. Asked the professor, in simpler terms, of course, and I don't know that I can do that, of the idea that the sum of the wave uh, functions of these other shadow universes might be related to dark matter present, not only in our universe, but in other universes as well.
2: Well, that's a pretty advanced question. Uh, when we were in high school, uh, we learned that all the chemicals in the universe are made out of atoms, and there are only about 100 different types of atoms, and we were very smug about that, right? You had to recite that on your high school exam. Well, that's wrong. You can go back to your high school teacher and tell them that most of the universe, 90% of it, in fact, is made out of dark matter, matter which is invisible, but it has weight. In other words, if I were to hold dark matter in front of you, it would be invisible. You would have a handful of nothing. But if I dropped it on your foot, you'd say, ouch, you'd feel it. (laughs) Okay. Now we know that our galaxy, the Hubble Space Telescope confirmed this, by the way. Our own galaxy, and galaxies we see in outer space, are surrounded by a halo. We didn't know this before, by the way. Uh, A halo, 90% of the mass is concentrated in this large halo surrounding galaxies. And galaxies we now know are much bigger than what you see. What you see is a tiny little, little saucer, but surrounding it is something ten times bigger, which is the dark matter. And the Hubble Space Telescope has now actually seen deflections of sunlight and starlight through this through this a sphere surrounding the, the galaxy. That's called dark matter.
5: Okay? Right. Okay.
2: Now, so we know that the universe is full of dark matter, and that may eventually determine whether our universe dies in a big crunch, a fiery big crunch, or the big chill, that is, we all freeze to death billions of years from now. You know, the poets have always asked, will the universe end in fire or ice? Well, we physicists don't know. If it ends in fire, that's called the big crunch, when all the stars collapse. It's called the big chill, if the universe expands and expands forever, and the stars blink out, and it gets very cold out there. But dark matter may solve the mystery. If there's enough dark matter, we will have a big crunch if there's not much dark matter we will have the big chill so what happens to the universe may in turn be determined by dark matter now about parallel universes that takes us into another realm our universe is apparently a bubble in the same way that columbus showed that the earth was round people thought the earth was infinite in those days
3: right, right. Infinite sure.
2: flat. columbus showed the earth was really a bubble if you went in one direction pretty soon you came back and and met uh, yourself, I mean, that's the Spain in the other direction, right? Sure. You fire a bullet and it eventually comes back and hits you in the back of your head. Mm-hmm. Einstein comes along and says, the universe is a bubble. You fire a flashlight in one direction, and the flashlight hits you in the back of your head. So the farthest star in the universe is our sun, and the farthest object in the universe is the back of your head. Huh. Okay? So light goes completely around the universe like a bubble, just like what Columbus said. Einstein says that light can now go around the bubble and hit you in the back of your head. Now the question is, are there other bubbles out there? Okay? Now, of course, historically we said no, but now a majority of cosmologists say yes.
1: All right, another bubble equating to another or a parallel
3: universe. That's
2: right. This is called the multiverse now. This is now the majority opinion within cosmologists. You're talking about people like Alan Guth, uh, Sir Martin Rees, Stephen Hawking has written a whole book about parallel universes. Indeed. Right. This is the dominant position now within cosmology that what happened before the Big Bang, before God said, let there be light, right? Before that instant, uh, there were other bubbles uh, frothing out of nothing, uh, little bubbles coming out of the vacuum like boiling water. Think of water boiling, right? With universes being created all the time, just springing out of nothing.
1: So God might have said, let there be light in number 10.
2: That's right. Or in the multiverse, yes. Right? The universe of universes. Uni means one. Now we're talking about a, a multiverse of universes, right? So I, I end my book visions, speculating now about the far future. Now, 500 years from now, when we may have enough energy to perhaps leave our bubble. Okay. All perhaps. right. But
1: before we leave our bubble, let me get to question two of this faxer, which is a good one. Fits right in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would. Uh, we're talking about transportation. Stephen Hawking once hinted at a type of communication between universes. Mm-hmm. If this is true, by what process did he allude to, or for this matter, what are your thoughts on interdimensional communication be- prior to transportation communication?
2: Right. Well, I think this person understands the sheer difficulty of opening up holes in space, um, in Alice in Wonderland, uh, we had this magic looking glass that connected Oxford with Wonderland, and you walk through the frame of the looking glass to an alternate universe, right? Yes. Today, we physicists believe that you can open up holes in space the same way that Alice had this looking glass, except that it's the frame of the looking glass that's the key. Uh, the simplest example would be a black hole. In the older days, we thought that a star would die and collapse to a dot, and that's the end of that. You fall into that dot, and you're crushed. Sure. That's the old picture. We don't believe that anymore. Because stars spin. Galaxies spin very rapidly. And we've now photographed 12 black holes in outer space, 12 Mm -hmm. of them. Yes. And beautiful pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope of M87, by the way. Gorgeous photographs. And they are spinning rings. Rings. And we think that at the middle of this spinning disk, there is this, frame of the looking glass such that if you fall through it, you don't fall through a dot you fall through a ring, it's a ring of neutrons that's Mm -hmm. rotating very rapidly centrifugal force, by the way, prevents it from collapsing because it rotates very rapidly
5: Mm -hmm. and if
2: you were to fall through it, you'd wind up in another dimension, wind up on another part of the universe now that was Jodie Foster's machine in the movie Contact you bet Okay. now I know that because Carl Sagan, who was a friend of mine asked us in his book you know he was stuck you know he was writing this science fiction novel about contact and he had a problem how do you go across millions of light years or thousands of light years without having to wait thousands of years and millions of years and we told him it's very simple you would have to access the power of a star and open up a wormhole Okay. Uh, however we were also very careful to tell him that the energy necessary to open up this wormhole is not to be found on the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't believe any inventor who says, I found a wormhole in my basement. The energy <laughs> is beyond anything on the earth. Uh, all right, all right. But, the of a star. but
1: again, the, the, the question was, rather than traveling through a wormhole, mm-hmm. what, what are the possibilities of... Uh, and, and I'm just reaching now, some sort of communication that would, in effect, be thrust through that hole, allowing communication prior to transportation.
2: Yes, before we put any humans through one of these things, right, we're going to have to test it. Uh, mainly test it first by sending subatomic particles through, you know, very, very simple radiation through such an instability and to see what happens at, at the other end, because, of course, these things could be unstable. Uh, that's one of the sources of controversy among scientists right now Uh, how long will this hole stay open Uh, some physicists have claimed that when you walk through this hole it'll collapse on you and of course that's horrible if you send you know a a test pilot through this wormhole and it collapsed on them they can't come back right? Right. so the recommendation has always been send subatomic particles first that's almost for free that's very easy to do Okay. And to see whether or not the wormhole stays open when you send the things like that, then later you can send instruments and see whether you can come back.
1: Okay. How far away is M80?
2: Oh, well, M87 uh, is the galaxy that we have photographed, and it's very far away. It's about 30, 40, 50 million light years away. So huh. traveling like a like a flashlight would take you about you know 50 million years to get there. But we think that black holes could be quite close to us. The center of our own galaxy, by the way, which is only about 30,000 light years away, the center of our galaxy is, is probably a black hole. We have one right in our backyard. Okay? So we're beginning to realize that black holes could be quite common in the universe. And that's one way to do it. Another way to do it, which was proposed recently by the physicists at Caltech, is to use something called exotic matter, which, is, which would have anti-gravity. It falls up rather than falling down. Hmm. Now, I'll be very frank, I've never seen anything fall up. I've only seen things fall down ever since I was a child, right? Right. But in principle, if you could find exotic matter somewhere deep in the Earth, for example, you could build a a stargate uh, with it. Uh, The mathematics is quite straightforward on this, and you could perhaps build a stargate out of exotic matter.
1: All right, we'll get back to that in a second. With regard to black holes... Um, which you say are rings, rotating rings, which makes sense and and sure sounds like contact. Uh, If you were to go through a black hole, would you be engaging in a sort of a dimensional crapshoot? In other words, there would be no predetermined way of knowing where you'd end up, would there? Uh,
2: Well, there is. Uh, If you solve the equations very carefully for Einstein's theory, you can actually show where you wind up on the other end. So it's not... It's not totally, you know, holding your nose and closing your eyes <laughs> and jumping it and saying Geronimo, right? Yes. It's not quite like that. However, you have to know everything about the black hole. You have to know how it formed. You have to know its weight. You have to know how fast it's spinning. And that you may not know. You may not know these things, right? In which case, it is a crapshoot. You don't know what's on the other end of this thing, Okay. However, in that famous episode of Star Trek in uh, The City on the Edge of Forever, yes. uh, Captain Kirk leaped into the wormhole and found uh, you know, a world before World War II, and he met Joan Collins on the other end of the wormhole. Hmm. So in some sense, we do know what's on the other end of at least one wormhole, and that is Joan Collins the series Star Trek.
1: Well is it not possible though, that the properties in some other dimension would be so dissimilar that we virtually could not exist in that continuum?
2: Uh, yes and no. If the wormhole connects our universe with itself, like a handle, you know uh, think of a uh, think of a donut, right where you wind up you know you go back in, into the universe back to itself again. So you would simply go from point A to point B in the same universe, and laws of physics are the
1: same. I I understand. All right, stay right Ah. where you are. Hold on, we're at the bottom of the hour. We have to break here. Clock says we have to break. Sorry. Dr. Michio Kaku is my guest. I'm Art Bell from the high desert. This is Coast to Coast AM with a hurricane approaching.
0: You're listening to Art Bell, somewhere in time on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from September 24th, 1997. presents Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight's program originally aired September 24th, 1997.
1: And my guest is one of our nation's premier theoretical physicists, Dr. Michio Kaku. We'll get back to him in a moment.
0: Now we take you back to the night of September 24th, 1997, on Art Bell, Somewhere in Time.
1: Right. We were discussing what might occur if you were to pop out of a black hole into another dimension where everything is virtually different, where all the laws of physics are virtually different. Uh, That wouldn't be such a good idea, would it, Doctor?
2: No, that wouldn't be a good idea, because the atoms of your body may not be stable, in which case the atoms will fall apart. Now, within our universe... Uh, the universe of our bubble that we see around us, the, un- the laws of physics are pretty much the same. We don't see any big difference going from one part of a universe to another with our with our telescopes. Right. However, if you go between bubbles now, it is possible to open up a wormhole to go between bubbles, which is still quite controversial. Then, of course, the laws of physics could change dramatically. You go to what is called the false vacuum. A new vacuum state emerges, mm. in which case, atoms will dissolve and reform. And quarks, for example, may not be stable, in which case new forms of matter could exist. So that, of course, is a real wild card, Uh, not just going into a black hole and winding up in some part of the universe where you don't know where, but winding up in a universe where your atoms may not be stable and may reconfigure into a new thing, or, for that matter, new laws of science opening up, in which case you've got to be very careful. Now, I'm also careful in all my books to state that the the civilization that could do this kind of fantastic maneuvering between dimensions would probably be like a Type two or a Type three civilization. Uh, even a Type I civilization uh, would be quite hard-pressed to manipulate stars and to combine them and to reform them, to open up these, open up these wormholes. But for a type 2 civilization that already has mastered the power of a star, this would be child's play with them. All
1: right. Well, then, a good question is, if there are type 2 and type 3 civilizations, why have they not yet visited us?
2: Well, quite a few physicists believe that they already have. And they have probably visited our moon now let me explain all right if you are a type two or type three looking at all the stars and billions and billions of possible uh, worlds to to look at you would send robots to these things and you would use nanotechnology to build things perhaps no bigger than the palm of your hand
5: sure. land
2: on a moon because a moon has low escape velocity it's very easy to leave and enter and plus it doesn't rain on the moons, so that you're not going to have rust and you're not going to have degradation and erosion So you land on a moon that then monitors that whole solar system, you see. And then, of course, this little robot then makes copies of itself. It makes a little factory, and it makes copies of itself, and then they fly off to other moons and other solar systems. That's the most efficient way to look for for new planets, because most planets are probably dead. Most planets are probably too far from the sun, too close to the sun where there's no liquid water. You only want to have solar systems that have liquid water on them because liquid water is a universal solvent that dissolves hydrocarbons that make DNA possible.
1: So you've got self-replicating probes, in effect.
2: That's right, landing on the moon. Now, there is some debate among scientists. I've interviewed quite a few physicists that believe that on our own moon, there may be such a self-replicating probe.
1: 2001, that's, here we so are that's again.
2: I've right. just been sitting there for thousands of years monitoring our solar system, and the, there would be an alarm clock on this device which signals the transition between Type 0 to Type 1 because okay? a Type 0 civilization is not that interesting they're like barbarians, like, like we are, right? Jeez. not much energy to speak of but a Type 1 is quite interesting a Type 1 civilization is planetary, quite mature has planetary energy and can have space probes go around the solar system so that's the trigger the, the this alarm clock on the moon would trigger when the, the natives are smart enough to reach the moon, you see. And that, of course, is what happens in the movie 2001 when they touch the monolith. The monolith is, in fact, this von Neumann probe. So that's the most efficient way to explore the system with robotic self-replicating probes that land on the moon. And when the natives are smart enough to reach the moon and make contact with the probe, the probe sends a signal to the mother planet saying the natives have now made a transition from type zero to type one so let's talk to these people these people are now very interesting we can learn from them and have a dialogue with them You see, mm-hmm. and so that's why there's some debate i've interviewed several physicists that believe that when we colonize the moon we, we may pick up remnants of previous visitations and again it's the simplest thing to do because it's easy to land easy to leave the Earth has higher gravity, be harder to leave the Earth, plus there's erosion. You leave a probe on the Earth, it rusts after a while, right? And over a million years, you know, even the crust of the Earth begins to change. But the Moon is quite stable, you know? And that's why lunar probes are probably the way in which these Type II civilizations actually probe most of the galaxy. How
1: would we, uh, as a matter of interest, discern the difference between uh, a probe found on the Moon and an artifact that might have been left over in some way from whatever the moon once was.
2: Well, this device would be based on nanotechnology, right? Because we're talking about a very lightweight probe and millions of them just being scattered throughout the heavens to search for liquid water in different uh, solar systems. So if we stumbled across one of these things, they may not be very big. They may be as big as your hand on one hand or maybe as big as the monolith in the movie 2001, right? But you would see regularity and patterns. You would see that there's tremendous complexity in this machine, that even at the molecular level, there's circuits at the molecular level in this device, a very complicated device that scans the entire solar system. Mm -hmm. Now, our satellites today are gradually attaining that capability. We are scanning the Earth with our satellites. We're getting very good at it. Oh, yes. Satellites are getting very small. But you can imagine that in a few hundred years from now, we'll be able to scan solar systems with devices that are no bigger than a basketball, you see. And that's what we think may be on our moon. Again, this is speculation. No one can prove it.
3: All right, here's somebody
1: with a criticism for you. Yeah. Uh, Quote, I find it's uh, from Tim in Orlando. I find the good doctor's scientific egocentrism's rather appalling. How can we make such predictions about other possible civilizations? It assumes that all life is based on carbon and evolves the same way as man. Is it not more likely that life is very much more diverse and evolves very much unlike humans have evolved on Earth.
2: Yes, I think he raises a valid point. But, you see, I'm talking about energy. You know, Forget carbon for the moment. Energy has to come from someplace. It comes from a planet. It comes from a star. It comes from a galaxy. There's no other choice. That's all there is. So even if you forget carbon, you're talking about type 1, type 2, In type 3, because that's the only energy source
1: available. No matter what it would be based on.
2: That's right. Now, carbon is special because it has four bonds. And because it has four bonds, like tinker toys you played with when you were a child, you can make all sorts of erector sets and carnival-like devices and boats and cars with it. Because it has four bonds. Silicon has four bonds so it's conceivable that other chemicals based on four bonds can also create elaborate molecules Mm -hmm. but to create self-replicating molecules like DNA does require something like carbon or something like silicon so I'm not going to say they're going to look like us that would be of course egocentric, anthropomorphic they may not look anything like us but the point is that they're eventually going to come up with energy requirements they have to have energy for their engines and that means planetary energy stellar energy, or galactic energy, which is type 1, type 2, and type 3. There's no other choice.
1: All right. Um, let's go back to exotic matter, which you mentioned. Uh, here's Bob up in uh, state of Washington who says, Hey, Art, relating to exotic matter, please ask uh, Dr. Kaku about the cloud of antimatter just found in our own galaxy. What does that do to his string theory?
2: Okay, as we know uh, from astronomical observations, there's a beautiful fountain of antimatter that is streaming slightly off-center from the center of our galaxy. Now, we think that this could be caused by a black hole. A black hole has whips particles like a slingshot effect, again, at tremendous velocities, right. and that will in turn cause collisions. Now, these collisions could have antimatter, but that's just a theory. So we now know that antimatter is not so rare that in, in the universe. But you see, the string theory very easily accommodates this because they're anti-strings. You know, strings can vibrate, and if you just change the frequency...
1: Can you give everybody a basic 101 on string theory?
2: Okay, very simple. Um, 2,000 years ago, the Greeks looked at violin strings, and they were marveling that with mathematics. They could look at harmonies. They were the first ones to figure out octaves and what A, B, C correspond to in terms of frequencies, right? Well, the Greeks wanted to explain the universe this way. They thought that it was so beautiful, these strings, that the universe could be explained as vibrating strings. They never got anywhere because they didn't understand light. They didn't understand gravity. They didn't understand the nuclear force. Well, today we think that uh, these little strings vibrating in hyperspace, ten-dimensional hyperspace, can explain everything. Because one frequency corresponds to an electron. Another frequency corresponds to a quark. And, of course, how many frequencies are there? An infinite number of them, right? And that explains the infinite number of particles that we see in the universe. You know, we have so many damn particles, right? Protons, neutrons, yes. quarks, pions, mesons, and, and Oppenheimer, the great scientist, once said that we should give the Nobel Prize to the physicist who does not discover a new particle that year. Well, now we have a simple explanation of why there are so many damn particles. They're nothing but notes on a super string, a very tiny string. And it's a marvelous idea. People are kicking themselves, saying, why didn't I think of that? But there's a price you pay, and the price you pay that it only vibrates in hyperspace. It cannot vibrate in four dimensions. It only vibrates in ten-dimensional hyperspace which means that there's enough room now to accommodate light and, and gravity and the nuclear force. The forces now are accommodated because we have more dimensions. And when these higher dimensions vibrate, you get forces.
1: All right. Uh, yeah. uh, let me quickly interrupt you here and uh, pass on a message. Last night my guest was Boris Saeed. Mm-hmm. Boris Saeed wanted to pass on greetings to you, said he knows ah, you. That's right. And, I know Boris. And Boris uh, has been doing a lot of work uh, with the pyramids. That's right and with acoustics in the pyramids. Mm -hmm. And it would seem that the vibrational level or frequency in the pyramids is very close to that of our Earth Mm -hmm. uh, in the low hertz areas, uh, 7, 8, 9 hertz, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. And does that fit in with what you're discussing right now in any way?
2: It does in the sense that these strings, when they vibrate, create matter, and matter itself vibrates. Mm-hmm. So all vibrations can ultimately be reduced down to the vibrations of the superstrings. So all the harmonies, all the, the, the symphony that we see around us, called the universe, right, is much simpler than we were ever led to believe, including the harmonies of the Earth, the harmonies we see in space. They can all be reduced to elemental harmonies, going back to the Greeks, the, the Pythagoreans they were called, mm-hmm. and the Pythagoreans were onto something. that is that the vibrations of these tiny strings can, in fact, explain quarks. In fact, uh, Murray Gelman is the founder of the quark model. He's the man who coined the word quark. And I I talked to him. He's a friend of mine. And I said, Murray, do you think that the quark model is the ultimate theory of everything? And he said, well, of of course not. We all know that quarks are an approximation and they're, they're very good, but ultimately it's strings. Ultimately, it's strings vibrating in hyperspace. Mm -hmm. So many Nobel laureates have already said that this is the simplest explanation for why we have matter, matter which vibrates, matter which resonates. And that's why we have this symphony called the universe.
1: Is it possible, and I know I'm reaching, that a type of time travel or a type of travel might, be achieved uh, uh, and I'm reaching now toward the original reason for the pyramids Uh, Boris Said and many others believe the pyramids are not burial places at all uh, but rather specific resonators at very important points on the earth with a purpose that we have not yet discerned Mm
2: -hmm. Okay, let me say this Uh, the pyramids have fascinated physicists Um, uh, Walter Alvarez uh, winner of the Nobel Prize even brought a particle detector into the main pyramid of Giza and detected cosmic rays because if they're hidden chambers, if they're hidden chambers in a certain direction, they're going to be more cosmic rays because, of course, it's air, not solid limestone, right? Mm -hmm. And so by looking at the fact that cosmic rays came in at different angles at different intensities, he could figure out where all the hidden chambers were. Okay, And by putting several of these... Our chambers, he was able to triangulate all the hidden chambers of the pyramids. Hmm. Unfortunately, he did not find any new ones. He wanted to find a new chamber that would maybe be called the Alvarez Chamber, right? Yes. But unfortunately, he just found the known chambers this way, okay? Now, about time travel, okay? We physicists historically would laugh at the idea of time travel. That's right. But I'll be very frank. Einstein's equations allow for time travel. Now, if you don't believe me, read Einstein's memoirs. He states flatly in his memoirs, I am disturbed, he said, that there are solutions found by Gödel, Kurt Gödel, the greatest mathematical logician in the last 1,000 years. Kurt Gödel found the first time travel solution of Einstein's equations, so he, he, it bothered him. But he died thinking that they weren't practical. You couldn't do anything with them, so why bother? Since then, we've found hundreds of other solutions which allow for, for time travel. And again, we're talking about a Type two civilization. No one's talking about an inventor announcing a time machine tomorrow in his basement. We're talking about our, maybe our descendants, uh, many, many generations from now, wanting to visit old grandpa, many times removed, Art Bell, to find out what it was like to live in the end of the 20th century, right? Or maybe aliens and out of space, specifically Type two and Type three, with the capability of opening up holes in space and time. So this is no longer conjectural. Well, it is conjectural, but we now have blueprints. We now have equations. We now have proposals.
1: What we don't have is power.
2: That's right. The the fundamental problem is gasoline. It takes energy to power the machine. So even if you build this time machine, there's a problem. You have to have an engine. You have to have gasoline for it. And the gasoline, like I said before, is either going to be a star... Or it's going to be this new form of matter. It's called exotic matter, negative matter. It goes by different names. But basically it's matter which falls up rather than down. It's antimatter. And so far I've never seen any. But these are the engines, the the gasoline that would power the engine of such a time machine.
1: Yes, but not very long ago, just years ago, we started with a spark transmitter. Mm -hmm. Then we used vacuum tubes, Mm -hmm. which required immense amounts of energy to achieve what we can now achieve with, um, you know, 100 or 200 milliamps Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, solid-state devices. So could there not be a quantum leap that would allow what you're thinking would require a great amount of energy with a much smaller amount of energy?
2: That's right. There's some speculation about this. You know, um, we physicists wanted to build the super collider outside Dallas, Texas. I recall. And Ronald Reagan really pushed hard for it. I recall. uh, was canceled. Yes. You know, 11 billion, a beautiful $11 billion machine was canceled outside Dallas,
1: Texas. What could we have done with it?
2: Well, we would have been able to open up uh, a window to creation. We would have been able to open up uh, the conditions of the Big Bang, you know, and this is the closest we would have come to, to creation that we can do on the planet Earth. Now, that machine still cannot access this uh, the other dimension that would require 10 to the 19 billion electron volts. That's one with 19 zeros after it, by the way, if you want to write it out. (laughs) No, thank you. That's a lot of energy, right? Now, on the other hand, there have been proposals to build new kinds of accelerators based on laser beams Mm -hmm. and and plasmas. I've looked at the designs, I went through the equations, and I'm I'm not convinced. But there are some people who claim that maybe high-powered lasers can take us near... These fabulous kinds of, of energies, right? My attitude is that, hey, you know, in outer space, it's probably there. You know, type two civilizations and type three civilizations use this all the time, probably. You know, they have this kind of energy. For us, it's inconceivable. You know, uh, let me give you another example. Isaac Newton, hundreds of years ago, was the first man who could calculate what it would take to jump to the moon. Believe it or not, cows cannot jump to the moon, but if you travel 25,000 miles per hour, you can go to the moon. Mm -hmm. Uh, Newton was the first human who could calculate that number. But what did he have in merry old England of 1640? Horses, carriages, right? Right. Well, that's what I feel like. I can calculate the energy necessary to open up a hole in space and perhaps access the 10th dimension. But what do we have today? Horses, called hydrogen bombs. Horses called Saturn Saturn rockets. That's all we have is horses. So we physicists can dream, but hey, you know, we live on the Earth. There are limited resources on the Earth. Our machine was canceled. So we're going to be, unfortunately, theorizing about these things rather than building any machines for many a year.
1: All right. Some time ago you said they didn't understand gravity. I'm not sure I understand gravity. The implication being we now understand gravity. Uh, what is, the, uh, Professor, what is
3: gravity?
2: Uh, very simply, if I take a sheet of paper and put uh, and crumple it up, right, and put an ant on it, yes, the ant would walk on the sheet of paper, saying, that "There's a force tugging on me." You know, every time I go over a fold, I get tugged to the left, I get tugged to the right. There's this force. I can't walk in a straight line. I walk like a drunk, right? <laughs> now we laugh at the ant. There's no force at all. It's space that's curved. It's space that's stretched, wrinkled. And we laugh at the ant, because the ant only has two-dimensional eyes, eyes that can only see on the sheet of paper.
1: All right, I'll tell you what. We're entering an area that I really want to talk about, and we're at the top of the hour, and we're going to start to take calls, but I want to finish this up with you, so hang tight. Good long break here, and we'll be right back to you, Doctor. Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor Kaku, is my guest. He is a theoretical physicist, and we've been all over the place, but oh, my, what a ride, huh? So when we come back, we'll talk a bit about gravity, and then I'll get the phone lines open and let you all ask questions. And by now, you should have quite a few. From the high desert, threatened, now, with a hurricane, a hurricane.
0: This is Coast to Coast AM. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight, featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from September 24th, 1997. Dot org. Networks presents Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight's program originally aired September 24, 1997.
1: Here I am once again. Again, those of you in the American Southwest where I am, I know it's weird, but it's happening. Hurricane Nora, winds 85 miles an hour, gusting higher, headed north now at 17 miles per hour, and expected probably midway up the Baja Peninsula, expected to come slamming into Arizona, parts of California, and Nevada, and and, uh, Utah. So, just what we needed, huh, folks?
0: Uh, A hurricane. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from September 24th. 1997.
1: All right, here once again is Dr. Kaku from New York. Uh, doctor, we were talking yep. about an ant crawling around a crumpled piece of paper, uh, discerning that he's having a hard time.
2: Right. See, when people think of Einstein, they kind of blink out and say, wow, I'll never be able to understand that. But it's actually quite simple what he was trying to get across. Now, if you're an ant, think of yourself as an ant. You have two-dimensional eyes. You can only see in a plane. And if you're walking on a crumpled sheet of paper, you're tugged to the left and you're tugged to the right, and you cannot walk in a straight line. Mm-hmm. Well, the ant would say there's a force. There's a mysterious thing called force, which is a yanking me to the left and a yanking me to the right. But we, with three-dimensional eyes looking down on the ants, you know, we laugh and we say, "Well, look, that's, there's no force at all. It's just the curving of the paper. That's all it is." Yes. So what Einstein said is that the curving of space that causes objects to move. Now you see objects move when they're touched. When you touch something, it moves, right? Everybody knows that objects move when you touch it. Right. But gravity is different. You know, things move without being touched. And Newton himself realized that that was a defect in his theory. The earth moves without being touched, and balls drop to the floor without being touched. Mm -hmm. But here comes Einstein saying, no, there is something touching the earth. There is something touching the ball, and that is space itself. It's invisible. That's why you can't see it. But it's space itself that's curved, that's causing the object to fall to the ground, you see?
1: You're implying that gravity is a push?
2: Caused by the bending of space.
1: Not not a pull, as we conventionally thought. That
2: no, that's right. It's a push. Objects move when they're pushed, and it's actually the bending of space which is pushing the object. And that's why if an ant tries to walk on a crumpled sheet of paper, it's, it's impossible, right? And that's because it's being jostled by space itself, that is, a sheet of paper. Now, we can't see it because our eyeballs... Okay, our eyeballs are also three-dimensional, and and it's three-dimensions that's being curved. If you had four-dimensional eyes, you could then see very clearly that its it's, it's space is being curved. But unfortunately, we don't have four-dimensional eyes, and we can't see it. So Mm -hmm. for the most part, it's invisible.
1: All right. Um, From London, Ontario, Canada, this question. Mm -hmm. What about the speed of light with a ten-dimensional multi-universe, Is then our speed of light just a maximum constant wave made up of other dimensional waves interfering either destructively or constructively?
2: Well, I know what he's getting at. I know he would like to say that we can go faster than the speed of light in other dimensions. Yes. But at least in the string theory, at least in this theory, which is the leading and, in fact, only theory to explain all of Einstein's theory, um, light travels at the speed of light in all dimensions. So you cannot whiz your way through faster than the speed of light in higher dimensions. What you can do is take a shortcut through higher dimensions. Take the same sheet of paper and fold it in half. Then, of course, you can leap across the fold. You see, That way you actually apparently went faster than the speed of light without violating any principle.
1: You didn't really, though.
2: You didn't really, that's right. You Mm -hmm. You punched a hole in the sheet of paper and hopped across rather than taking the long way, which is to go across uh, across a sheet of paper tediously. And that's how space warps do
1: it. People will constantly call me up and taunt me with this, and then we'll go to phones. They will say, if you're traveling very near the speed of light, or just right. about right up at the speed of light, right. and you're in, effectively, a car or a spaceship, and flip on your headlights, right. what happens?
2: Okay, the headlight in front of you also travels at the speed of light, okay? Now, of course, you may say to yourself, well, that's impossible because I'm going near the speed of light myself. I should see this thing, you know, going very slow. The problem is your brain also slows down. And because your brain slows down, okay, light then travels at the speed of light no matter where you move, where where are you from? Because whenever you try to catch up to a speed of light, catch up to a light beam, your brain slows down. So it always seems to move away from you at the speed of light. And that was the key observation, by the way, that Einstein made. Up up to that point, people didn't want to play with space, I mean time. They thought that time was beat uniformly throughout the universe. You know, a second on the moon is a second on
3: the Earth a second on Mars.
2: Einstein disproved that. And we can actually measure it, by the way. A clock on the moon beats faster than a clock on the Earth and a clock in space beats a little bit faster than a clock on the Earth, depending on its velocity. We've measured these things now. So it's no longer speculation. We do know that time does slow down the faster you move. And that explains the paradox of how light can go at the same speed no matter what speed you are moving.
1: Hmm. Uh, suppose I'm able to travel at, at or near, just near, the speed of light mm-hmm. for 10 or 20 years right. and then do the same thing and return to Earth with a total travel time of 40 years or covering nearly 40 light years. Right. When I get back to Earth what will have occurred?
2: Well the Earth may have aged uh, millions of years depending upon how long you were in flight uh, your clock on your spaceship may only average a very brief amount of time. Let's say you want to go to the nearest star that's four light years away When you travel near the speed of light, again, your brain slows down, your clock slows down, and for you it may be one second. It may take one second to go to the nearest star. But on the Earth, we clock it at four years. So a return trip would be eight years, but for the guy in the rocket ship, it may only be two seconds. (laughs) right? And so if we had a telescope and looked at him, we would see him frozen. He would be frozen for four years. And when he comes back, he's frozen for another four years. And when we, he lands, he speeds up, and we say, well, what, what happened during those eight years? And he says, what eight years? You know, It was just two seconds to me. I just walked in the spaceship and walked out again.
1: All right. I, have, I can't resist asking you this. I have seen one extremely close-up UFO. All right, this was an object that came up from behind our automobile, close that to line. close to where I live here in Pahrump, Nevada. Mm-hmm. It was a precise triangle. Mm-hmm. It was just like in the movies or very close. The moon went away, which was nearly full. The stars went away. I got out of my car along with my wife. We both looked up at it. Mm-hmm. It passed directly over our head. Mm-hmm. This object was not flying. Uh, As in aerodynamic flight, it made zero noise. I could hear a cricket at a quarter mile away, and I watched it float out across the valley. Mm -hmm. Now, this object was defying gravity, Doctor. It was not flying. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that we have craft or will have craft, and I say have craft because of what I saw, Mm -hmm. that can, in effect, defy gravity?
2: Okay. Magnetism has been thought of as a propulsion method which would be silent. Okay? Uh, many people have seen flying saucers that zigzag, that are silent, that yes. knock out cars, for example. Yes. Right? Oh,
3: yes.
2: Now magnetism may do it. However, the Earth's magnetic field is extremely weak. It's about half a gauss as we call it. And it's very weak. And to ride magnetism like you ride on a sail mm-hmm. would require a tremendous amount of power. And would require something called monopoles. Now a monopole is a, just a north pole. Uh, everybody knows if you take a magnet and crack it in half, you get yes. two baby magnets. Correct. You crack them, you get four baby magnets. Right. No one has ever seen a north pole by itself. That's called a monopole. Monopole, right? But if you could create monopoles, then conceivably you could surf on the Earth's magnetic field silently. Because, uh, of course, there's no engines, right? You just silently surf and, uh, on the Earth's magnetic field. But an ordinary magnet can't do it. And any Boy Scout or Girl Scout knows that if you have a magnet in the Earth's magnetic field, it simply spins, right? It's called a compass. Yes. So if you have a big magnet with a north and a south pole, your flying saucer is going to tip over and simply spin and point toward north.
1: Well, Doctor, I saw something that did it. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Well, in which case, consistent with the laws of physics, Okay, it's probably some kind of magnetic device using monopoles rather than anti-gravity because so far we've never seen any, any form of anti-gravity. Exotic matter would have anti-gravity, but we've never seen exotic matter. Well,
1: you are connected to some of the nation's leading researchers. That's right. Uh, are they doing any work in this area?
2: Well, at Stanford University, there was one professor who claimed to have seen a monopole, and he actually photographed it, a track but it's not reproducible. He's the only one on Earth who has ever photographed a track of a monopole, and some people think it was dust in his machine, but he still claims that it was a real monopole. Uh, Many theories of the Big Bang show that the Big Bang must have created lots of monopoles. In fact, the leading theory of cosmology predicts lots of monopoles. If there are what are called relic monopoles, monopoles left over from the Big Bang, and a Type II civilization could harvest them in outer space, then conceivably they could sail in the magnetism of the galaxy and the magnetism of the earth which is quite small but if you have powerful enough uh... monopoles you'd be able to sail silently uh... without an exhaust uh... you would not use newton's third law of motion which of course requires big engines and booster rockets you would coast using the laws of a faraday using the mm. laws instead of the laws of newton and uh, of course you know, in the labs of today, we have not seen monopoles other than one registered at Stanford University.
1: How much work, black work, is going on with your colleagues, uh, without getting specific, because I suppose even if you knew, you couldn't talk. But I want to... Yeah. I, but my question is really how much really black work is being done. I mean, this is constantly going on right. w- with respect to our government, and they take people like yourself and they can get their hands on them and um, uh, generally give them nice little sort of places to live and work and labs and all they need and want and aim them at a project.
2: Right, yeah. More black work takes place than you suspect. Yeah. A lot of it takes place. In my field, like, like nuclear physics, for example, 50% of the funding in one way or another comes from, from the military, and we now know, in fact, that uh, the military was trying to hide stealth fighters and stealth bombers Yes. Uh, by claiming that uh, they're just natural phenomenon, mirages,
3: oh, yes.
1: marsh
2: gas,
3: whatever. whatever,
2: when actually they were stealth fighter jets and stealth bombers with very peculiar shapes.
1: But all that's now out in the open. It's
2: in the open now. But we know that for years this went on. It took, you know, decades to develop the uh, stealth bomber,
1: right? So my imagination says we have not stopped with these projects. We're now how many generations from the stealth bomber?
2: Oh, yeah. We we have, uh, you know, in the skunk works of Lockheed, uh, new generations of these things coming out. Because the stealth bomber technology is 20 years old. Yeah, indeed. Only now is the public seeing these things. And you can actually buy kits now uh, in... in, and hobby shops and design and build stealth bombers on your tabletop. Oh,
1: you can get a tester kit of the Aurora. So, yeah. But the question is, how much further might we be, and might we already be, into the kind of areas that we just talked about?
2: Well, there's, there's always speculation, right? Um, <laughs> stealth technology dominated the, um, the black box stuff, I mean, uh, the black work stuff for 20 years. However, the new stuff is stuff with electronic warfare, you know, uh, laser beams that can that can blind an enemy.
1: Oh, as a matter of uh, fact, better than that, I believe the Defense Department just requested permission to blast a satellite out of the uh, out of orbit.
2: That's right. Uh, the miracle laser. Uh, it's a 800 million dollar laser that'll blast a 30 million dollar communication satellite right out of the sky. <sighs> and that of course was was hush hush for a long time. The fact that we have uh, super lasers that can conceivably knock out satellites out of the sky. Now of course there's a drawback to that because who what country is most dependent on satellites? We are it's not Iraq. No. Iraq has no satellites.
1: That's right. We, we are. are most dependent uh, you bet. the
2: danger is that we may shoot ourselves in the foot or or uh, you know pick up a rock and drop it on our own feet. We gotta be very careful about this because you know lasers are rather easy to build. You know, Iraq can build lasers but Hey, who has satellites?
1: How are we able to build a laser strong enough to overcome the limiting effects of the lower uh, part of the atmosphere? I understand they were quite successful with lasers at high altitudes where the um, atmosphere is very thin, but now we're talking about ground-based lasers.
2: That's right. That's quite difficult. Ninety percent of the energy is absorbed by the air, as you correctly point out. Therefore, you have to have super lasers that uh, can, can afford to waste 90% heating up the air as they go through the air to knock out a satellite which is like 200 miles uh, above the Earth's surface. Right? So personally, I think it's not the way to go because you know, we are the most vulnerable to this kind of technology. And even countries that cannot send satellites into space, they can build lasers. You know, it's not that hard. The, the instructions are published in many books. Hugs. But, yeah, you're right. You have to have a powerful <laughs> laser that can overcome the fact that 90% of the energy goes into heating up the atmosphere rather than shooting down a uh, satellite from space. Now, by the way, one thing that is not going to come out of these black works is a ray gun. Okay?
5: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: you're not going to get a handheld portable ray gun coming out because of the power problem. You need a portable power pack to do that. We have lasers that are every bit as powerful as you, what you see in science fiction movies. That's no problem. With a nuclear power plant, you can energize a laser beam. But you can't carry a nuclear power plant in your pocket. You can't carry a nuclear power plant everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. And that's one reason why ray guns were eventually abandoned by the military. Okay. They can be used for blinding, but the blast requires a big power source. And uh, a portable power pack is not feasible.
1: Is it feasible, last question, we're at the bottom of the hour and I ignore the audience and we're going to go to the phones, I promise, when we come back. Is it feasible to collect power from the sun in space and bring it to Earth via microwave?
2: Yes, that's being looked at. Now we're talking maybe 50 years into the future. Um, There are some drawbacks. You know, satellites move and therefore, you know, if you have like a magnifying glass magnifying all that solar energy (laughs) to a point, that point moves.
1: Oh, we're story, in trouble.
2: Then we're in trouble. We can knock out a city.
1: There was see. a movie, uh, actually a book written called Sunstroke about that.
2: Uh-huh. So you've got to be careful. These, these, and if the satellites are very far away, so they're stationary, that's 20,000 miles away, mm-hmm. and then you can't get much of a magnification effect. So either they're close up, dangerous, and they move, or they're far away, stationary, and you don't get much energy coming
1: out. Hopefully stationary. The satellite I'm using, uh, GE-1. Mm -hmm. Um, Interestingly, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Doctor, um, suddenly lost Earth lock, Mm -hmm. is what uh, GE AmeriCom said, and we went off the air. It was quite an incident. Uh, And yeah, Oh, that is right. Yes, Doctor, stay uh, right where you are, and we'll be right back. This is Coast to Coast AM.
0: You're listening to Art Bell, somewhere in time, on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from September 24th, 1997. Bell somewhere in time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from September 24th, 1997.
1: My guest is Dr. Michio Kaku, one of the nation's premier theoretical physicists. He'll be back in a moment. Alright, I've got to tell you, uh, this is from Daryl, I was in the process of making an ice cream sundae, imagine this, folks, for Bobby, and put uh, pull a half gallon in the microwave to soften it up. At the same time, I was so absorbed in this discussion that I misset the timer and roamed around the kitchen until I realized I forgot something. Long and short of it is that I got inundated in a Ben & Jerry's tsunami. Goes to show me that even with a basic understanding of physics, thought and consciousness, in this case unconsciousness, seems to enter into the equation now, How about on a subatomic level, does not the observer influence that which he observes? (laughs) It's an interesting question.
0: Now we take you back to the night of September 24th, 1997, on Ark Bell, Somewhere in Time.
1: Well, all right. Here we go. Dr. Kaku, are you there? Yes, I'm right here. If we don't go to the phones, they'll lynch me. So here we go. Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Dr. Kaku. Where are you calling from, please?
6: Hello there. Uh, Am I on the line?
1: You're on the line, yes. Okay,
6: great. Well, I'm calling from San Diego.
1: All right. Mm -hmm.
6: And I want to just uh, say that I think you guys are doing a fantastic job of uh, uh, informing the public about something really interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I invented the Force Isolator Scroll, or labyrinth, if you like, for allowing for recoil propulsion, which uh, theoretically could even be warp drive. And right now NASA are looking into that with great interest. Um, uh, when you go out to uh, to do your vacation and uh, check out, you know, all these ancient places, yes. uh, are you going to be uh, uh, looking into the possibilities of uh, evidence of this technology being ancient?
1: Well, I'm probably going to be drinking a lot of silly little drinks with umbrellas <laughs> in the mouth. Uh, uh, but, Doctor, would you care to comment on what he just said?
2: Okay, well, let me lay out the next 50 to 100 years with propulsion systems being worked out by NASA. And, again, it's all in my book, Visions. The next generation of rocket propulsions are going to be ionic drives. Uh, prototypes are now being built uh... they will probably have long-haul missions between planets done by ion engines ion engines are like the um the uh... electron gun in your tv set uh... it shoots out electrons on one end and it propels the device in the other direction they don't they're not very spectacular but they're very steady and they operate for years at a time while booster rockets of course only work for about four minutes
1: so it's a steady buildup of propulsion
2: that's right the tortoise wins over the hair the HAIR is the booster rocket that flames out in four minutes. But once you're in space, you don't need booster rockets. The ion drive will give you a steady a steady stream of energy for years at a time, and the ion engine is going to be used for long-haul missions between star systems.
1: Well, I mean, that and, and what about the concept of a sail?
2: Yeah, now, then we go to the next generation beyond that, which uses light, Okay. Uh, there are several uh, versions being proposed. Uh, one is the laser sail, where you shoot a laser beam from a moon to a sail, and the sail captures the laser beam and then floats and, and is pushed by the pressure of light. Right. That has been looked very seriously now uh, for perhaps the first probes to the nearby stars may, be used, may use laser-inflated sails. My favorite is the Ramjet fusion engine. which, of course, has a lot of technical problems. We haven't attained fusion yet. But once fusion is in the bag, then we may be able to use a scoop to scoop hydrogen gas in the forward direction, fuse it in this chamber, and then blast your way to the nearby stars. So the ramjet fusion engine, I think, is perhaps the best bet once we start now to talk 50 years in the future, when we have a better handle on fusion power, which, of course, is still a a pie in the sky. So, again, the three leading contenders are ion engines, which is actually, we have them already. The next after that are the photon engines, based on laser beams. And the one that is perhaps the dark horse is the Ramjet fusion propulsion device, which probably will take us to the nearby stars. Again, it will take us many decades to
1: reach the That would be some very serious propulsion in space.
2: Right. And then talking further than that now, okay, is the possibility, of course, of warp drive, But as I I clearly point out, warp drive requires a lot of energy. Uh, You know, Planck energy is 10 to the 19 billion electron volts. And that would, of course, open up a hole in space by which you could simply hop through. But unfortunately, I think that's really for type 2 civilizations who have already mastered that kind of technology.
1: All right, not for us yet. East Um, of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Kaku. Good morning.
2: Good morning. Uh, Honored to talk with you both. This is Eric
7: in Austin, Texas. Yes, Eric. Um, I've got a first of all, I got a comment uh, regarding the uh, observation quote that uh, you read at the uh, beginning of the segment. Um, it, I kind of have a compliment to that in that my very it, it's an axiom that says my vibrational field is sufficient enough to affect reality before that.
5: <laughs>
7: so, uh, Mr. Kaku, yes. I wanted to ask you kind of a segue to that. Uh, Regarding paranormal activities, uh, ESP, ghosts, uh, telepathy, etc.,
2: could this be energetic manifestations from higher dimensions? uh, Well, I'll I'll be very frank about this. A hundred years ago, when mysticism was quite popular in England, several future Nobel Prize laureates in physics looked Mm -hmm. at this question and said that uh, if you could access the fourth dimension, Mm -hmm. you could then... Go through walls, you could go, you could disappear into hyperspace and come back, you could unravel knots, you could turn right handed seashells into left handed seashells, you could do all those tricks if you could access a higher dimension. Mm-hmm. Now, today, of course, we realize that it takes energy, raw energy to access the fourth and fifth and sixth dimensions. Yes. However, if someone could do that, then of course it would be child's play, uh, literally child's play. To make things disappear and reappear, uh, unravel knots, uh, turn seashells around to opposite orientation, mm-hmm. and reach into walls, uh, break into safes without breaking open the metal, it would be child's play. But of course, my personal point of view is that this is for a Type two civilization, which is far beyond anything that we can conceive of today. So now, we're talking about a couple thousand years down the road, then? Well, maybe a thousand years down the road, okay? Now, about ESP, um, it is possible to radio enhance ESP. This has already been done, by the way, at the University of Michigan. Really? Uh, paraplegics, right, can look at an oscilloscope screen of their own brainwaves, mm-hmm. okay? You are now looking at the oscilloscope screen of your own brainwaves, mm-hmm. and then when you think a certain thought, it creates a certain blip. By training yourself, you can then modify the blips on the screen at will. At will. That if kind you of sounds like uh,
7: modified biofeedback that. Uh,
1: Absolutely. Right. I, I know a man, Daniel Brinkley, my good friend, recovering well now, by the way, who can regulate his own pulse rate.
2: Mm-hmm. And if you can regulate your own brain waves, mm-hmm. then of course you can begin to type letters on a typewriter by thinking about it. And again, this is not science fiction. It's already been done. I've, I've actually seen people do this. And again, people are trained by biofeedback to recognize patterns on an oscilloscope screen, like the letter A, for example, mm-hmm. uh, corresponds to a certain blip on the screen. You move your right hand and A pops out. That can then be used to drive a, a typewriter. Wow. And then you can actually drive cars by thinking about it. You <laughs> can put the helmet on and... Communicate by radio and drive a car remote control. This has already been done for people who are paraplegic, who have parts by moving their body.
1: Oh, that is Radio
2: enhanced telepathy. Biofeedback to regulate telepathy.
1: All right, and I suppose, uh, thank you very much, Carl. That's a good question. I suppose that, uh, uh, that it could be expanded. In other words, uh, we're at the very threshold, the very beginning of learning what we can do with all that.
2: Right. You know, we're, we're children when it comes to the brain. You know, we have the foggiest clue as to how the brain works. Uh, and biofeedback is the crudest way in which we can manipulate thoughts and thereby make uh, specific patterns on an oscilloscope screen dance. And by controlling the dance on the oscilloscope screen, we can actually send thoughts uh, via radio Boy.
1: across thousands of miles. All right, here's a beauty for you. Uh, doctor, if the Big Bang Theory is correct that all matter was infinitesimally small until the Big Bang and that now our universe is expanding and all matter is moving away from us due to the expansion does that mean that we too are expanding and just can't tell it because all of our instruments that would measure it are also expanding
2: okay that's a famous paradox if everything expands if our brain expands if the room expands If everything expands, then you would never know it. Right. Therefore, the universe would look constant. Right. Right. Well, it turns out, if you look at the equations, it turns out that space between galaxies and space between stars expands. But if you take a look at the atomic theory, you know, the atoms don't expand. So it is a space between the galaxies that expands, not the atoms themselves.
1: Okay. Okay. All right. So the, the instruments, then, are not expanding. That's right. All right, that's comforting, actually. Uh, West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Professor Kaku. Hi. Hi, Art. This is David in Colorado. Yes, sir.
7: Uh, I have a question for the doctor. Yeah.
1: Uh, have you see, uh, seen or
7: heard of a movie called Event Horizon?
2: Uh, I've seen advertisements for the Event Horizon.
7: Okay. Uh, it basically, uh, what you were talking about earlier uh, with the black hole and folding space right. going, okay, it was basically all uh, the movie was based on that uh it was really an interesting movie and i would uh suggest seeing it if you're <laughs> really interested in this type of uh ordeal but uh it it sounds almost identical to what you're speaking of uh they in fact your comment about uh folding a piece of paper and punching a hole through it was uh, almost an exact quote from the movie
2: oh is that right yeah yeah you know um many filmmakers give me telephone calls and uh, they want to know how to factually represent certain things in the movies because otherwise they make real bloopers, right? They make some outrageous mistake. like oh, Star yes. Wars has many mistakes in it, right? So a lot of filmmakers are actually calling me on the telephone now and, and asking to clarify certain obscure aspects of Einstein's theory or, or simple physics of outer space travel, right?
1: Were you consulted at all about contact?
2: Uh, no, but uh, Carl Sagan uh, called Kip Thorne at Caltech, and, of course, you know, he's a relativist like we are, and, and then he explained to Carl Sagan how you would in fact, leap across light years of space without the, the, long, the long way, the, the old-fashioned way, which is by rocket ship. So uh, for uh, the, the people on the planet Vega, they would at least be type 2. And, and for them, warping space would be child's play. So for them, of course, we would give them the right to then open up holes in space by which they can grab Jodie Foster and have a, have a decent conversation with her uh, on, on the planet
4: Vega.
1: <laughs> First time caller line. You're on the air with Professor Kaku. Good morning.
4: Good morning. Um, where um, where are you, sir? Uh, Vancouver, B- B.C. All right. Um, I have a question. Actually, it's two quick questions, really, please. Uh, one is um, there is a ratio between the uh, mass and uh, and the uh, fuel that you need to to push a rocket. And as you approach the speed of light, you increase your mass. At the same time, you're increasing the the uh, the mass of the uh, fuel that you're carrying. So once you approach the speed of light, your mass becomes infinite. But at the same time, the ratio remains equal. So would you please explain uh, that? Would that be possible? And the other thing is regarding the uh, uh, the quarks. That uh, if if we ever get the technology to actually manipulate quarks, can we create different type of matter that does not conform to the uh, periodic table? Thank you very much.
5: All right.
2: Okay, yeah, you asked two very interesting questions. You're correct. As you approach the speed of light, you get heavy and heavy and heavier until you're almost at the speed of light. You have almost infinite mass. And that's yet another reason why you cannot go faster than the speed of light because then your mass
1: would be bigger than that
2: of the universe.
1: Except you pointed out that the fuel would also be
3: increasing.
2: Right. But the energy you extract from the fuel does not increase like that. So even though you are heavier and heavier you're not going to be able to get that extra oomph because the the energy you get from the fuel cannot carry you faster than the speed of light so the extra energy simply takes you one more decimal place closer to the speed of light but you Mm -hmm. cannot leap beyond the speed of light you don't have enough energy to do it
1: all right and on
3: quarks
2: yeah so at the present time we do not have enough energy to rip apart the quarks we have atom smashers that smashed atoms apart but we have not been able to rip quarks away from each other so far now in stars there should be enough energy to do that and they're called quark stars just like we have neutron stars and uh, we are trying to see whether or not quark stars may in fact exist just like neutron stars were once thought to be science fiction and now we see them in outer space we see several hundred uh, neutron stars otherwise known as pulsars uh, blinking at us uh, from outer space so at the present time, we cannot do this. We cannot rip apart quarks. We cannot create new states of matter. However, for stars, that should be commonplace. So we are looking now for outer space to see whether or not new states of matter might exist.
4: All right.
1: Here's a far-out question for you. You mentioned that as you move up in the type of civilizations, you're utilizing energy in a very different way. That's right. Now, is it not possible that uh, somebody would come zooming along Uh, need to refuel, stop by our sun, refuel, virtually uh, dousing our sun, and just keep going and not even know what they did to us.
2: Yeah, I thought about that. That is possible. A type 2 civilization uses the energy outputs of entire stars. Okay, in fact... um, uh, the Dyson sphere is one proposal by which you could extract total energy from a star by simply putting a sphere around it.
1: Thinking about it as much as we might when we step on an anthill.
2: That's right. So what happens is uh, if a civilization has to refuel, and it uh, refuels by sucking off a tremendous amount of energy from our star, and our star blinks out, right? Uh, that, would, that would not be very good. <laughs> no. Um, so far, we have not seen anything like that. Uh, so far, stars are born, stars die. We haven't seen any stars uh, accelerate uh, their death. However, if you have Dyson spheres, then of course these stars are invisible. They're they're covered completely, and the civilization simply soaks up all the energy of, of the star, and we wouldn't we wouldn't <laughs> even know it. Okay. So so far, we have not seen that, and hopefully, I hope I hope that our sun is not a, a gas station for some for some gas guzzler that wants to come by and shift the sun of most of his energy so he can propel himself to the next star system.
1: Exactly. East yeah. of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Kaku. Good morning.
8: I have a question with regards to propulsion, right. uh, magnetic, uh, gravity, and static. For instance, I work in a polymer lab, mm-hmm. and I can take a bag with, say, 30 pounds of resin and a pellet. Right. I can turn that bag upside down, and by the force of gravity, if that 30-pound bag, the pellets will fall out onto a tray. Right. But through static, maybe 15 to 20 grams will adhere to the bag while it's upside down. Right. I can then take that bag and shake it, and those bags and those there will be a handful of pellets that will dance inside of that bag. With through static. Right, static cling. It, right. Excuse me? Stati- yeah, static cling. Yes, but I can shake the bag up and down continuously and the pellets will dance inside the bag. Is right. Would there be a way to produce propulsion through static electricity? Oh, I see. Um,
2: well, people have tried to produce what are called rail guns. Uh, the military is very much interested in this, using electricity instead of chemicals. You see, if you have a chemical gun, you're limited by the speed of sound. Shock waves don't go much faster than the speed of sound, which is about 700 miles an hour. So bullets don't go much more than maybe a 1,000 or so miles per hour because they're based on chemical shock waves. Electricity travels at the speed of light. So if you could have a rail gun, a gun that looks like a rail, and send electricity along the rail, and then that electricity then drags a piece of metal along with it, then you could conceivably launch an object that will go tens of thousands of miles per hour wow. and into orbit.
1: Stand by, we'll be right back to you, Doctor. I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM from the High Desert, where a hurricane is bound.
0: You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, the night featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from September 24, 1997. <laughs> presents Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight's program originally aired September 24th, 1997.
1: Well, uh, my webmaster, ever fast on the draw, if you will go to the guest section of my website at www.artbell.com, besides being able to go and buy Art Bell stock if you go to the Rogue Market, you will now see, by uh, Dr. Kaku's name, a link and, boy, you ought to see what's on his website. I'm sitting there now looking at nuclear power, both sides. To win a nuclear war, the Pentagon's secret war plans. Beyond Einstein, a cosmic quest for the theory of the universe. Introduction to superstrings, strings. Strings, conformal fields and topology. Uh, Quarks and strings. Quantum field theory, a modern introduction. And I could go on down the page. There's an awful lot here. Uh, so if you would like to see a link uh, to The Good Doctor's uh, website, it is up there right now. It says uh, Michio Kaku Explorations in Science. Just click on that and you'll go over to his website. Remarkable, remarkable stuff.
0: Now we take you back to the night of September 24th, 1997 on Ark Bell, Somewhere in Time.
1: All right, Uh, Dr. Kaku, you'll be interested in this. This is a Reuters report. Mm -hmm. Um, As of now, as of right now, just came in. U.S. government space scientists have launched a miniature rocket using a ground-based laser beam for propulsion, Mm -hmm. according to the Advanced Space Transportation Program, or ASTP, on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So they just did it. They Mm -hmm. launched a rocket with a laser.
2: Well, um, like I said, the photon engine is an engine that has been seriously looked at for um, even interplanetary travel and interstellar travel uh, because light has pressure. Now, on the Earth, the pressure is very minimal. That's why we prefer to use chemical rockets. But in space, you know, you can push against the pressure of light beams and have sails, in fact, to, to use this. So some people have advocated using uh, laser beams in space, based on the moon, for example.
1: Right. You couldn't base it on, for example, a space platform because there would be an opposite and equal reaction, right?
2: That's right. It would be very difficult because of Newton's third law of motion. Anyone who's ever jumped out of a rowboat knows that the robot tends to go in one direction and you go in the other and you fall in the water, Right. So um, you would have to base it on the moon, for example, where there is uh, no air uh, to absorb the laser light.
5: You mm-hmm. can have tremendous
2: power on a laser beam. And uh, that's been seriously looked at. The calculations have been done by NASA. And, of course, this is far in the future. But uh, one of these days we may use photon engines to take, us, to take the probes to the nearby stars. The first probe to Alpha Centauri may, in fact, be done on a photon engine. Uh, ramjet fusion engines are still a pie in the sky. So the first interstellar probe uh, within 50 years may actually be a photon probe.
1: Well, it really is rather annoying to have such a short lifespan so that we cannot see all of this manifest, isn't it?
2: Yes, and that's why it would be nice to um, lengthen the lifespan a bit so that we could see some of the fantastic technologies that await us in, in the next uh, several decades. I'm
1: all for that. All right, Wild Card Line, you're on the air with Dr. Kaku. Good morning. Hello. Hello. Yes, sir. Yes, where, where, where are you? I'm in Berkeley, California. Berkeley, all right?
7: Yeah, and Dr. Kaku, the critics of superstring theory sometimes yeah. say that it's got to be missing a major piece because even though it claims to unify a lot of the forces of nature, it doesn't make any new predictions. Can you comment on this, please?
2: Uh, well, the major criticism of superstring theory is that you can't test it because it's a theory of everything and it's a theory of the Big Bang, and therefore you have to recreate a Big Bang in order to, to uh, actually test the whole theory. Um, I tend to think that if we solve the theory completely, mathematically, it'll give us the mass of the quarks, it'll give us the properties of atoms, DNA, and in that sense explain the universe that actually exists. And then, to answer your criticism, it'll actually explain the world of super high energies, the energies found, let's say, inside a supernova. It'll go beyond ordinary technology and ordinary physics. So superstring theory, the theory of these higher dimensions and little strings vibrating in them, will hopefully explain not only atoms and molecules and DNA, but will also explain what's happening at the center of a supernova and what's happening at the center of the Big Bang, and that will give us new information. No theory at present can take us beyond the instant of the Big Bang except superstring theory, because the theory of the quantum theory married to Einstein's theory. So we will get new physics from this. We won't simply regurgitate the Mm old-fashioned stuff. We'll get what happened before the Big Bang, which is very interesting. It takes us one step closer to to God by whatever name you call him or her.
1: Indeed, it does. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Kaku. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. I'm Jim in St. Louis. And Dr. Kaku, I had
7: read a a book one time, or part of a book, by uh, Stephen Hawking, he brought up the subject uh, while well, he was discussing how energy could possibly leak out of a black hole somehow. That's right. That vacuum, what a layman might think of as a vacuum, could really be composed of particles that are constantly coming into existence with their anti pairs and annihilating each other somehow. That's right. Uh, and it all adds up to the same thing as a vacuum. Now, what I want to ask you is this. Well, i got several questions. First of all, are these things all around me right now doing this?
2: That's right, they are. Have
7: they been observed?
2: Yes. Um, what he's trying to say is that even the vacuum of outer space is frothing with virtual particles, uh, particles that dance in and out of the vacuum. And we've measured this. In fact, Richard Feynman won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1965 for this theory, along with two other physicists. Okay, so let me ask terrified. you this then. Uh,
7: would there ever be any way you could think of to cause these little guys to wait a minute before they, well not a minute, but some amount, of, finite amount of time, before they annihilated each other and went back to nothing, and to take some from one side of us and put them on the other side of us so that essentially, since they are what we call space, it would be shrinking in one direction and becoming larger and backless. Wouldn't that push you around?
2: Hmm. Well, that's what Stephen Hawking was trying to get at. Um, These virtual particles which dance in and out of the vacuum amount to nothing because it's still the vacuum. But if you have a tremendous gravitational field, you can push, as you point out, them in one direction, and thereby you can get net radiation coming out of this.
7: Well, no, that wasn't what I was talking about. I was talking about taking the paired particles from one side of you, but before they would annihilate, and putting them on the other side of you, so that one side of you space would be expanding. Mm-hmm. In other words, you like make a little section of the gravity around that. Well, in other words, well, didn't Einstein say that you couldn't really tell the difference between acceleration and
2: gravity? Yeah,
7: that's the equivalence principle. And Well, so wouldn't it be equivalent if you uh, took some of these particles, these particle pairs, from one side of you
5: mm-hmm. and
7: got them to wait just long enough to move them to the other side of you before they did their little thing, kind of mm-hmm. concentrated them
5: mm-hmm. on
7: one side and made less of them on the other? Wouldn't that actually be taking something away from space and making space smaller on one side of you and larger? Uh,
2: no. Creating
1: uh, creating propulsion of a sort, you mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, well, you see, there is a propulsion effect associated with this, as you point out. But you see, the propulsion is even in all directions. So if I have a black hole, which is a spherical uh, or disk, right? The black hole leaks this radiation, as you correctly point out. These things pop out of the vacuum. One side goes one way, one side goes the other, but it's uniform. You see, so it all cancels out. So the black hole does not propel itself in one direction. It cancels one to the left and on the other side of the black hole, one to the right.
7: Well, I understood that, but I wasn't talking about that. I guess I'm not making myself clear. But but a uh, net
2: propulsion, I've never seen a device that gives you net propulsion. Um, Hawking's idea was everything cancels out so the black hole doesn't move. Well, everything would
7: be canceling out in this idea, too. It's just where they would be when they did that. I I assume that they're uniform in, quote, empty space all over the place. That's they're right corrected. they're
2: in your body, they're in the vacuum, they're everywhere
7: they're in pretty much uniform and random.
2: that's right. It's called the Casimir effect, yeah,
7: uh-huh uh, well, what I'm talking about is somehow, and I have no idea what kind of mechanism this would take it would probably pr- be prohibitive in energy or technology, but mm-hmm. just theoretically, if you could since the space consists of these things. Mm-hmm. If you could take some of them from one region of space before they went back and did their thing and put them, concentrate them in another region of space, it would seem that since space is these things, you would be making space smaller. In other words, kind of creating a a gravity well that would just be like one little section right local there uh... kind of pointing in one from one direction to another direction and use this as a form of propulsion
2: yeah in principle it sounds like a good idea in practice you have to worry that the effect is going to cancel out uh... let's say you're inside a car and you push the car to the left just by putting your shoulder to the left your car temporarily moves to the left but then it rocks back to the right again right Mm -hmm. the center of gravity of the car is still the same so you can rock back and forth in a stationary car temporarily go to the left, but then you jostle back to the right again, you see. So the trick is to go only to the left and stay there without bouncing back. And so far all the calculations that Hawking and I have done and so on and so forth show that this effect is real. You can measure it. It's 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 been measured in the laboratory now. But that it's uniform. It cancels out, and so you cannot make a propulsion system out of it, though it would make a neat idea. You know, propulsion from nothing would make a great idea. I,
1: I saw what he was driving at. I'm not sure I should have, but I, I sort of vaguely understood mm-hmm. what he meant uh, in creating a well mm-hmm. uh, in which you would move forward, and uh, it, it, it made some sense. Right. Uh, first so he- time, I'm sorry.
2: But you, the thing is, the well is created evenly in both directions so that it all cancels out.
1: So you'd sit there and vibrate.
4: That's right. you rock back and forth.
1: All right. First time caller line, you're on the air with Dr. Kaku. Hi.
4: Yes. Good morning, Art. Uh, good, morning. Uh, good morning, Dr. Kaku. Yeah. Uh, this is Mark calling from Honolulu. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. I was wondering, uh, have you seen the movie Event Horizon? Uh, no,
2: but the previous caller referred to it. Sounds like a great movie.
4: Uh, yes. Basically, the idea of the ship was to create a wormhole through space using uh, a compartment. I guess they what they did was they managed to artificially generate a black hole. Mm-hmm, they use right. the immense gravitational field to move between there and the Alpha Centauri. That's right. But apparently, what went wrong was what was in between there and Alpha Centauri.
2: Huh, a monster of some sort, huh?
4: Um, uh, kind of sort of, but I wouldn't want to give it away for you oh. because it was a Thank very you. good movie. Thank you. Okay, but. Um, in line with that there was also this uh japanese manga artist um yukinobu hosino
5: mm-hmm.
4: he uh did this book called 2001 Nights, mm-hmm. and in his his theory about it was was creating a controlled any matter reaction mm-hmm. to right create a micro black hole and then they uh encased it in a permanently generating uh, permanently generated magnetic field mm-hmm. right and what they would do is, I guess, I believe the term is they created a, a gravitational field mirror,
2: mm-hmm.
4: and they use that to open up a wormhole. Huh. Right.
2: Now, and I um, was just curious. I, I understand what they're driving at. Uh, antimatter exists. Okay. In fact, when I was in high school, I won the National Science Fair award for photographing antimatter. It exists. We can. We actually see it coming from the center of our galaxy. The problem is we see very little of it. There's very little antimatter around, not sufficient to cause any great engine to be created like in, in Star Trek. Now, antimatter has positive energy, okay? So that the total amount of energy of matter and antimatter is still pretty small. It's not that much energy. So you still cannot open a black hole with, with antimatter. You would have to have lots of antimatter to do this, and that, of course, we were, we're talking about the technology of a Type II civilization. Mm-hmm. So in principle, you could do it, yes. You could open up holes with uh, either matter or antimatter. You have a choice. Uh, the problem is that you need enormous quantities of it, and uh, that is beyond anything that we can attain on the Earth. And you're correct, by the way, that magnetism is the way to contain antimatter because, of course, if you touch antimatter, you blow up. It's, it's, right. uh, it's like a bomb. So you have to be very careful.
1: Well, is that not the first most likely use they would make of an antimatter doctor?
2: Yes. Many years ago, Congress was worried about antimatter bombs, and um, there was an antimatter gap, in fact.
1: Uh, they thought the Russians had an
2: antimatter bomb, and we had to get our scientists to work on antimatter too. Well, you know, you can build antimatter machines, except they're extremely expensive. You know, it takes a few billion dollars just to get a few microamps. Of a uh, beam of energy. And, you know, we do it at different atom smashers around the country, like Fermilab outside Chicago. Uh, the point is that it's billions of dollars for the teeniest little frail current coming out of the machine. So it's not a practical device to be used as a weapon. So Congress does not have to worry about an antimatter gap with any other country.
1: Unfortunately, we're much more likely to get funding uh, if antimatter ever gets to be practical uh, in order to create a bomb than we are to get funding to uh, do anything really practical with it. Yeah,
2: but that's very unfortunate, right? That, that, That Congress would first reach for the bomb and then, as an afterthought, think of of uh, commercial and consumer applications to the technology.
1: Did you refuse to work on uh, atomic hydrogen bombs and so forth on principle or simply because you preferred a, a different route for your your science?
9: Well, you
2: asked a good question because, you know, I was offered a job at the Livermore National Laboratory
1: yes, to exactly.
2: design these hydrogen bombs yes. and uh At first, it was more a question that I would rather work on Einstein's theory and complete uh, the biggest bomb of all, which was the Big Bang. But later, I began to realize that, uh, you know, these bombs kill people, and uh, they can can destroy the Earth. And now that I understand that we are headed toward a Type 1 civilization, that the main danger preventing us from flourishing as a Type 1 civilization is self-annihilation. So now it's become ideological. Now I I believe that this is really a test, that every type zero civilization in our galaxy, and there are probably hundreds of them, are being tested to see whether they're mature enough and have enough wisdom to handle this powerful technology. And unfortunately, a lot of them never made the grade, I'm sure.
1: Well, then uh, aren't your colleagues working on refining these, which they still continue to do, uh, enemies of civilization?
2: Uh, yeah, unfortunately, now they're working on what is called the third generation. You know, the first and the second generation of bombs was not enough. Now they're working on what I call third generation bombs or designer hydrogen bombs. Uh, first generation hydrogen bombs are very big, the size of a house, and could blow up a city, right? But second generation hydrogen bombs are very tiny, like Mervs. You could put ten of them in the nose cone of an MX missile. Right. Third generation hydrogen bombs are designer hydrogen bombs they can be used for specific tasks like star wars like uh, bunker busters like silo busters like uh, earth penetrators <laughs> uh they could be used in the desert in the jungle in outer space in the ocean so these designer hydrogen bombs is what they're working on now and i personally don't see any use for designer hydrogen bombs because it makes war more tempting a general will feel much more comfortable using a small uh, bun- uh, bunker buster than using these huge hydrogen warheads, and that will get us into a lot of trouble.
1: Do you see any way that there could be uh, use by a national entity of a nuclear device that would not eventually lead to a fuller, more complete uh, nuclear exchange?
2: Well, I think that's one of the great um, problems is that, um, well, you know, like I said, I was in Russia a year and a half ago, and mm-hmm. I met my counterparts in the Russian Academy of Sciences, and they've seen that nuclear weapons helped to bankrupt their country. You know, they spent their national wealth building these things, nice. and it broke the bank. It, it broke their country. Their country fell apart as a consequence. And now their lakes are polluted. Uh, Sverdlovsk is polluted with nuclear reactors. uh, Semi-Palatinsk is polluted. um, uh, Huge areas of Siberia are polluted with nuclear radiation, uh, much worse than in the United States. And that's the price you pay for reaching for this kind of power, right? And now, as I mentioned before, we have some of it missing, which, of course, is another cause a concern so when you mix nationalism with nuclear weapons you get into big
1: trouble yes you do all right doctor hold on we've got only one more segment to go you've really done
0: very very well you're listening to art bell somewhere in time on premier radio networks tonight an encore presentation of coast to coast am from september 24th 1997 Mark Bell, Somewhere in Time, on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from September 24th, 1997.
1: Good morning. Dr. Mijio Kaku is my guest from uh, New York. He's a theoretical physicist, one of our nation's premier. And uh, because we've got a caller long distance, I think, all the way from Mexico... I'm going to go ahead and take a call before we do a uh, commercial break. Dr. Kaku, are you there?
5: Yes, I'm here. Right.
1: I believe we've got somebody from Mexico. Let's see if we do. Uh, hello. Uh, first time caller line. You're on the air. Where are you calling from?
4: Uh, in Puebla, near the Popocatépetl volcano out.
1: In Mexico? Yes. Uh, how's the volcano down there?
2: Uh, it's uh, calms, calms, calms
6: down completely.
1: That's good to hear. Uh, yes. Well, anyway, do you have a question?
6: Yes. For Mr. Okaku, for Dr. Okaku, Uh, I I know that um,
2: in the center of our galaxy there is a black hole from Scientific American. I read it. Uh, That is true. How is the truth? Thank you very much, Art.
1: All right. Uh, He's saying, is it true first there is a black hole in the
3: center of our galaxy? There
2: is great evidence that there is. The Hubble Space Telescope has now peered into the center of our galaxy, and we find gases swirling in a circle. Now, by calculating the velocity of the gas, we can calculate how much mass there is at the center, and it does obey the equation for a black hole. The equation for a black hole says the escape velocity is the speed of light. Therefore, we have indirect evidence that even in our own backyard, just 30,000 light years away or so, at the center of our galaxy, there is, in fact, a black hole so there is good evidence it's not a hundred percent yet uh... people are not crowing about it yet that they bagged a black hole in the milky way galaxy <laughs> but the Hubble space telescope gives us a lot of independent checks now that there is in fact a black hole right in our own backyard you don't have to go fifty million light years to m87 or ngc4268 uh, right in our own backyard we seem to have one of these things
1: all right i've got a wonderful question for you about black holes when we get back in a second
0: Now, we take you back to the night of September 24th, 1997, on Ark Bell, Somewhere in Time.
1: Now, uh, Dr. Kaku, uh, yeah. it, it has been speculated for a long time that there may be such a thing as a miniature black hole. Mm -hmm. Even even a little tiny, tiny black hole. That's right. Now, if such a a thing were to pass across Earth's orbit, Mm -hmm. virtually um, cutting itself through the Earth, what would occur?
2: Okay. Um, These are called evaporating mini black holes. Um, As pointed out by a previous caller, uh, black holes will ooze away some of their energy. There is this energy of the vacuum, and you have what are called virtual particles. Some of these virtual particles become real particles, and so the, the vac- black hole essentially evaporates with time. So it's conceivable now that some of these are drifting in outer space and perhaps even drifting through the solar system. Okay. Yes. However, their mass gradually evaporates. At a certain point, they can't hold on together, and then they explode. Okay. Right. So we tend to think that they're pretty rare. We tend to think that they will explode before they become so numerous that we're going to bump into one of these things. Okay. Uh, but again, if you want more information about black holes, I have a whole chapter in my book Visions: How Science Will Revolutionize the 21st Century about looking farther ahead beyond 100 years when we may have we may make contact with some of these black holes and perhaps maybe even harness. Uh, the power of some of these black holes. But that, of course, is now hundreds of years um, into the future. But if a drifting mini-black hole were to come by our solar system, uh, some people think that could be a very convenient power source. We would essentially have the power of a mini-star uh, right in our own backyard. But that's still speculation. We have never seen a mini-black hole. We've only seen these big galactic ones so far. But perhaps it's only a matter of time before we see smaller ones, perhaps even drifting near the solar system.
1: Would it be possible with immense amounts of energy to create a miniature black hole?
2: Yes, and that is what all the speculation is about. In fact, uh, I have a friend at MIT who even claims that in your your basement, if you could concentrate enough energy in your basement, and of course this is not for us, this is for type 2 civilizations, (laughs) you could create a mini black hole in your basement and a small bubble would form, and this bubble would be a baby universe. Wow. So um, I asked him, well, is that dangerous to create a mini-universe in your basement? And he admitted, well, the shockwave would be about a hydrogen bombs worth. But other than that, it's not going to destroy our universe.
1: Other than that?
2: Other than that, right.
1: Other than New York City or Los Angeles disappearing suddenly.
2: That's right. Other than that, no problem. That's right. So I told them that maybe it's not such a good idea to bake a black hole in your basement. <laughs> but the calculations are doable. I went over them myself, right? And there it is. It's conceivable that, again, for a type 2 civilization mm. that can manipulate stellar energies, they can cook a small black hole in a, in a laboratory with a very small event horizon, an event horizon perhaps only maybe 10 feet across, and open up the looking glass.
1: We're really going to have an interesting future, aren't we?
2: Yes, and that's why I would hope to live to see some of that. Um, I would hope that at least our children would have the capability of seeing some of the wonders that await us if we can make the transition from a type zero to type one without blowing ourselves up or polluting our environment.
1: But such an if. If you were to project our chances based on present trends.
2: Yeah, it's not too good. You know, as you point out, we're messing with El Nino, uh, you know even the weather is beginning to get affected some people think that global warming is affecting El Nino we're not positive about that but that's one theory
1: well they argue about it you know the people who look at the ocean say it's the atmospheric uh, problem Uh, the atmospheric people say it's the ocean they all argue but they don't really seem to know for sure and that worries me
2: but if there is global warming we're gonna see a lot of hurricanes you know hurricanes uh, just like the Greek god Antaeus that had power but when he stood on the earth and could be defeated when he was lifted off the earth uh, hurricanes derive their power from ocean water, hot ocean water.
1: Oh, yes, they do. And
2: the global warming will create more hot ocean water, and that means more hurricanes. You know, the insurance companies are deathly afraid
1: that I don't global warming
2: is going to put them out of business. I
1: don't blame them. I mean, or here hurricane I am. I am in the middle of the desert. We have cactus here. Mm-hmm. Cactus. I'm in serious Desert. I'm near Death Valley. Mm-hmm. And, I, and this morning I'm facing news of a hurricane churning toward me.
2: Well, we're going to hear more about that uh, because, according to one theory, global warming is affecting nodal points, you know, and these one of these nodal points happens to be El Nino, and El Nino happens to control most of the weather of North America.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, Wild Card Line, you're on the air with Dr. Kaku. Uh, good morning, where are you?
9: Good morning, I'm calling from Alaska.
1: Where in Alaska? Um,
9: El Nino has definitely affected us. It's raining so hard here, it's raining up. However, I did have a question for the doctor.
1: All right. What part of Alaska are you in?
9: Prince William Sound.
1: Oh, all right. Go ahead.
4: Cordova,
9: Alaska. All right. Um, My question is, as a faithful listener to Art Bell, I have heard the Area 51 tapes. I heard the reverse speech last night. Yes. And... I'm thinking through theoretical physics, how on earth can we explain people walking through other dimensions into our positions now?
1: Oh, uh, well, that's that's quite easily explained, I would expect, if you've been listening. If there are type 2 or type 3 civilizations... Uh, they may indeed have come strolling through and uh, taken a look-see at us, Uh, correct, Doctor?
2: That's right. Uh, Again, this is a technology that is far beyond anything that we puny people in a Type 0 civilization can conceive of. But if you have enough energy and concentrate it into a point, you can open up a hole in space, perhaps, and then perhaps walk through it. And again, this is the energy content of a star, but Type 2 civilizations, by definition, handle that kind of energy in which case they can play with stars and create mini stars in their basements and open up such portals which allow them to walk through dimensions okay so it would be child's play for a type 2 or a type 3 civilization to perhaps harness these things now there is some debate about stability you know there are some physicists who claim that they're not very stable but assuming you can stabilize these holes so they don't you know swallow you up and don't close after you go into them Assuming you can stabilize them, then of course you can use them as gateways
1: to other other spaces and other times. Mm-hmm. Uh, east of the Rockies, uh, you're on the air with Dr. Kaku. Good morning.
9: Did you say east?
1: Yes, yes, yes. Oh,
9: goody. Uh, good morning, Art.
1: Good morning. Where Tennessee are you?
9: In Memphis, Tennessee.
1: Memphis. All right.
9: Yeah, and I talked to you once before because I told you that I used one of Richard Hoagland's ideas that he had talked about for my son's uh, science project, and he won. I re- oh yes, I recall. You recall that? Yes. Well, I've been listening to the doctor since the first of this interview, doctor, mm-hmm. and I am no brain, no, no nuclear. Uh, I'm smart, but I'm not one of these scientists people like you're talking about. But a lot of the ideas sound like something. If I researched it even further, it might be something that my son could do this year because we've got to, we're starting early this
3: year as a
1: science project.
9: Mm-hmm. As a, yeah, yeah, like he, you, you know, or Richard was talking about. Uh, how the how things might like grow on Europa, and how uh, how also uh, crop circles may have been made, and he gave told me how to do it, and we did it. Yes, and it turned out, but it was only only documentation I had was uh, Art Bell and Richard Hoagland at 3:30 in the morning.
2: Mm-hmm.
9: So I thought maybe the doctor might have something something little that we could duplicate that. Uh, Yes, what
2: um, what a high school kid could do for a science project is, for example, photograph antimatter. Now, this is not as outrageous as it sounds. When I was in high school, I sent away for a little piece of sodium-22, which is slightly radioactive, and it it emits antimatter by itself, anti-electrons called positrons. You put that in a cloud chamber, you know, a little chamber with uh, that's cold on the bottom and wet on top with alcohol, Mm -hmm. and you put glass on top of it, and then you shine light in it, and you can actually see beams of antimatter coming out of sodium-22. Then I built a magnet to bend the antimatter to prove that it was positively charged. Everyone knows electrons are negatively charged, but I could prove that this was antimatter by building magnets. So with relatively, you know, it only cost me 20 bucks to build this thing, and it got me to the National Science Fair, and it impressed a hell out of the judges. One of them was Edward Teller, in fact. And, <laughs> uh, that's how I got to know Edward Teller, through my science project, because he instinctively knew what I was doing. I didn't have to explain to him what I was doing. He immediately knew what I was doing. You
1: know? Did Edward Teller ever discuss with you uh, how he rationalized the kind of work he was doing?
2: He never did, but um, I went to school with his um, his daughter Wendy. We used to go on the airplane together, and uh, late at night she would complain that uh, sometimes she would bring a date home, and uh, and the father, of course, wants to know what you do for a living, right? Yes. Well, Edward Teller wanted to know what uh, the date's position on communism was before he would allow her her to date him.
1: Well, that may answer the question.
2: Yeah. So he had a one track mind. It was, uh, he had this tremendous uh, uh, vision, a dark vision, I suppose, that nuclear weapons would, uh, in some sense, be part of this cosmic battle with communism. For me, it was very scary because I was just in high school when I met up with him, right? But uh, that propelled him throughout most of his adult life, you know.
1: we uh, We are all relaxed in thinking that the Cold War is over, that the Large nuclear weapons are being destroyed. Uh, But the truth of the matter is, doctor, the really dangerous ones, the MIRV weapons, they're all still there. They can be retargeted in minutes, and we're not in any way out from under just yet. And should there be a large social disturbance or revolution in Russia, for example... The possibility or the danger of a nuclear exchange is still very much there, isn't it?
2: That's right. Uh, The older bombs are being dismantled. They're being taken apart uh, at Amarillo, Texas, and the pits. You can actually see some of the pits in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Oh, yes. So the older bombs are being taken apart, but as you correctly pointed out, uh, the newer bombs are still intact, and at Livermore, they're even tinkering with these third-generation bombs. And a lot of the generals in Russia, they're not fools, right? They're saying, why should we destroy our bombs when the the American skis are are building third-generation hydrogen bombs, right? So there's a danger that some of the generals in Russia, seeing that we're not really dismantling our arsenal, will stop dismantling the Russian arsenal. And as you pointed out, with all this instability, bomb material could be lost. Uh, generals could perhaps seize control of part of the arsenal, or there could be instability in Russia. So I think we have a golden opportunity now if Clinton would be brave enough to stabilize the situation, not go for new generations of hydrogen warheads, and in good faith you know, start to uh, dismantle ours and give money to Russia to stabilize our nuclear scientists, who are of course starving to death, and uh, they, in turn, could leave and go to hot spots around the world, which would make things a lot worse. Mm-hmm. So we have this golden opportunity now, but I see it kind of frittering away. You know, I don't see the president taking big initiatives with regards to closing down Livermore or our uh, Los Alamos National Laboratory and resurrecting them as laboratories for life to work on the greenhouse problem, to work on ozone depletion, the electric car, and all the things that we need in in the 21st century. Don't we
1: have enough bombs?
2: Yes, we had, at one point, 30,000 hydrogen and atomic warheads. 30,000,
1: right? 30,000.
2: Yeah, and the Russians, of course, had an equal number. So that at one point during the Cold War, there were 60,000 atomic and hydrogen bombs,
1: you know. Even, even, even with the remaining stockpiles, if there was a full exchange, what would the result be?
2: Oh, it only takes a few hundred megatons to set off nuclear winter, as Carl Sagan pointed out. Cities would burn, and they would burn for weeks at a time. And the soot from all these burning cities would then blanket the Earth, and we would die the way the dinosaurs died, right? They died because it got cold, because a comet also set up soot into the air. And so even if we had a fraction of our current arsenal, that would be sufficient to set off nuclear winter or nuclear autumn, and create temperatures so low that we couldn't grow crops anymore, and a lot of people would freeze to death as a consequence.
5: Mm -hmm. So
2: that's why we have all these threats to prevent us from attaining type 1 status, because we have the pull, the pull of the old world, which says we have to have lots of bombs and and lots of laboratories to produce them and lots of nuclear scientists to produce more bombs, right? Uh, My attitude is we have enough problems. We should take these top scientists and have them solve the greenhouse effect. Uh, to solve global warming.
1: Is there any chance that a bunch of scientists like yourself can get together and petition the president?
2: Well, I, it would be uh, worth a try, I suppose. Um, you know, the uh, president just allocated forty billion dollars to modernize our nuclear arsenal. It's called the Nuclear Stockpile Stewardship Program. He wants to build a laser that is two football fields across, <sighs> a laser beam that could be used to set off a hydrogen bomb. Now, if you're a Russian general and you just learned that President Clinton okayed $40 billion to modernize America's nuclear weapons, you're going to say, but that's not in good faith. (laughs) We're dismantling our bombs. Our bombs are falling apart. We can barely count our bombs. And here you are building laser beams two football fields across to design third-generation hydrogen bombs. So at some point, some general in Russia is going to say, I've had enough. And that's what I'm worried
1: about. Well, I think we should all enjoy what type zero time we have left.
2: <laughs> I know it
1: sounds somewhat negative. Um, it has been a pleasure having you on the air, and I hope that we can again do it sometime. Some
2: okay, it's been a real pleasure.
1: Uh, doctor, take care, and good night.
2: Okay, good night.
1: All right, that's Dr. Michio Kaku, everybody, and what a night, huh? Tomorrow night we're going to do a couple of things. We are going to interview... A guy Finley, who's going to be talking about quickening type subjects, us, frankly. And then Ramona will come on and give those of you who are coming on the Egyptian trip and more some helpful hints on hacking and what we'll do when we get there. From the high desert, threatened by a hurricane, good night.